This is not the media. This is hell. Hi there. Hi. Hi, it's producer Alex. You are listening to This is Hell. Your host Chuck is on spring break, but content never sleeps. So I put together a four-hour episode on Detroit and labor and capital and neoliberalism and race and history and DIY economies and housing and new ways to live. So it's about Detroit, but it's also about a lot of other places now and soon. Uh, I hope you like it. Okay, we're back with a new show next week. Welcome to Detroit. Auto workers ruin the U.S. auto industry by asking for and getting too much money and too many benefits. In fact, it's unions and workers that's destroyed all of U.S. manufacturing. Or not, mostly not, as it was actually the U.S. auto industry's desire to kill unions that killed the auto industry and Detroit. Here to explain how sociologist Joshua Murray is co-author with another sociologist, Michael Schwartz, in the Catalyst magazine article, Collateral Damage, How Capital's War on Labor Killed Detroit. Welcome to This Is Hell, Joshua. Thank you. Joshua is assistant professor of sociology at Vanderbilt University and is affiliated faculty at Vanderbilt Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions. And this article appears in the very first issue of a new journal, this one by the makers of Jacobin, and it's called Catalyst. When it comes to blaming unions for the auto workers down for the automakers downturn, you write the most common version blames the UAW, the United Auto Workers, crediting the union with bludgeoning the auto industry into concessions that created a huge cost of labor disadvantage, which ultimately resulted in the industry migrating to areas with more competitive labor rates. This version is dominant among right-leaning analysts, the business press, and the mainstream media, including Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists such as Paul Ingracia. To you, what explains why this narrative has been allowed to hold ground for so long within the mainstream media. Why hasn't the media reported on what you see as capital's war on labor killing Detroit? Well, I think first off is just that we don't have an understanding or a narrative in mainstream American media or culture that there's class warfare at all, right? The idea of class warfare is only used as a bludgeon against the working class. So anytime the working class asks for anything, you'll get talking heads on right-wing leaning media like Fox News saying this is class warfare. But the idea that the capitalist class, the corporate elite and the political elite, uh, collude to engage in class warfare, that's just not, it's not on anybody's horizon. So I think with that idea taken out, then it becomes very hard to see the kind of historical development as being part of class warfare, right? So all, all they see is that everybody agrees that the auto industry shipped jobs out of Detroit to places with cheaper labor. And then it becomes, an, you have to explain that. And if class warfare is off the table, then we get this idea that it's just the natural result of the market, right? And if it's the natural result of the market, well, what's the market force? Is that capitalists are always going to look for cheaper labor and the unions made labor more expensive. So it's the union's fault, right? So it gets back into that narrative, which is that the only class warfare is when the working class asks for things. So it must have been the union's class warfare that caused this. And you write on the greedy union narrative, often pushed in the establishment media, quote, 
A typical instance occurred during the 2008 uh, auto industry financial crisis. New York Times reporter Pil Vlasic falsely asserted that a massive wage and benefits differential between unionized workers in Detroit and non-union Toyota workers in Tennessee prevented the big three from matching the cost structure of the non-union plants operated by foreign automakers in the United States. In 2011, Reuters reporter Paula Ingracia blamed this mythical differential on the UAW, which has had been shaped through confrontation and therefore kept demanding more and more until it priced the U.S. auto industry out of the market. Can we blame this kind of reporting on a different reading of numbers or a different way of accounting or the reporters unwittingly being given false information? Because you portray these pieces of evidence as easily refutable But for whatever reason, at the time, they seemingly not only went unchallenged, but were commended for their insight and accuracy. Right. Um, It's it's definitely not a different reading the numbers. I mean, there's a certain context. So, for example, the the claim that there was this huge cost differential in labor and then they used the Detroit auto uh, wages, right? But it weren't just the wages, all the benefits including benefits to retired workers, right? So then he said, okay, well, the average worker makes, I think it was $72 an hour. And they took the Tennessee one. Well, part of that context is that all of the big three's workers aren't in Detroit and all of Toyota's workers aren't in Tennessee, right? And that if you take into account all of the workers, including all of the workers in foreign countries that don't have unions and work for slave wages, then the average cost differential isn't very much. And so in some ways, this is... uh, you know, rigging rigging the numbers to make the point they want to they want to make, and so that was a heritage study that came up with the heritage foundation study that came up with those numbers, and then the media picks it up. You know, I have to think to to be generous to the media. Some of them they're not experts in statistics, they're not experts in doing analysis, so they take a think tank numbers and they said they believe them and they run with them, and then they build a narrative around them. And that's one of the powers of think tanks, right? Is that they hire people to come up with studies, but they're not studies that are just about finding the truth. They're studies that are about pushing a narrative. And they give it to a media that needs stories and is undersourced and doesn't have people to do the research, and they pick them up and they run with them. That's part of it. But then there's also part of the the structure of the ownership of the media, right, and what gets filtered through the media. And this is a corporate media. And the corporate media isn't going to push overwhelmingly the idea that corporate greed is the reason for the struggles of the country. Uh, They're going to filter that out. So a a stray reporter here or there may report that, but that's not going to get picked up by everybody. That's not going to, they're not going to rise up um, to, you know, to the high ranks of the media and it's not going to get out. And so you see that all over. I mean, I think that the 2016 election showed that where you saw uh, Bernie Sanders kind of just bringing that narrative out, but then it didn't get the same media coverage, right? And, And how he got covered was different. So they focused on, well, there's no details to his plans. This is unicorns and rainbows. And of course, the context to that is nobody has details to their plans because Congress passes details. And the president's job is to come up with ideas. And so you're asking for something specific from the person pushing this kind of working class point of view that you don't ask for others. That's, I don't see that as a total accident, right? So there's kind of two forces happening at once here. One is a pressure from the corporate ownership and the structure. And another is just the fact that even well-meaning reporters don't have an expertise. and They're given these numbers from think tanks and they run with them. That is a fantastic analysis of the media, Joshua. You write, the accelerated deindustrialization of Detroit during the 1970s was indeed a reaction by the big three to the arrival of Japanese and European automobiles in the U.S. market. But the high wages in Detroit were not 
the primary or even secondary reason for their actions. Instead, the 1970s crisis derived from the incapacity of the big three to, one, match the new and upgraded features incorporated into the imports, and or two, implement flexible production systems that allowed continuous improvement in production efficiency. So it wasn't the workers' fault that Detroit was having difficulty competing. It was the managers, the executives who made decisions about design improvements in order to compete and spending on production lines, neither of which union workers controlled. To you, what explained the big threes or what explains the big threes unwillingness to innovate in the light of new competition. I mean, that's what capitalist uh, companies are supposed to do. And GM is one of the, you know, uh, heroes of capitalism here in the United States. So so what explains the big three's unwillingness to innovate? Right. And and so this is really a case of of tax dependence. Uh, At a certain point, the decisions that were made kind of constrained GM's ability. So this is also another part of the explanation for why this narrative is missed so much is when do you start the analysis? So if you start the analysis at 1970, then it seems as though you just see this cost differential and you're trying to explain it. But if you move it back right into, into the Depression era, what you see is where the decision came from. And so in, in the 70s and 80s, when Japanese automakers came into the U.S. and European automakers came in, they're using this flexible production uh, and you see the kind of a divergence, right? And the big three start losing market share. Uh, they actually try to reinstitute flexible production. So it's, it's not a case where they just said, you know, no, we're not going to innovate. No, we're not going to use this. This is our system. They recognized that it was a much more innovative system and that they were losing. And they tried to start putting it back in. But they run into a couple of problems. In dismantling it in the first place, what they did was, build up a system of dispersed production. So the reason they got rid of it, right, while flexible production is fantastic for the capitalists in the sense that it creates huge productivity, huge efficiency, huge innovation, uh, and they make profits off of it, it also gifts workers what we call structural leverage. So part of the flexible system is that you geographically concentrate production so that all the suppliers are around the assembler. And this allows you to get rid of stockpiles, right, and do just-in-time delivery. And you produce all of the parts on flexible machinery within the same plant. What this does for workers is a handful of workers sit down at their station and it stops production. There's no stockpile. They can't ramp up production elsewhere because it's all in one what they call mother plants. And so this is the flint strike, right? It's 36, 37. They do that and it shuts down 75% of GM production. And even though it's the biggest, richest corporation in America, a couple hundred workers shut them down and went industrial unionism. And so in getting rid of that, they wanted to get rid of those kind of leverage points. So they started producing model parts for cars in multiple plants all over. They started assembling the same car in multiple plants, separated by you know, hundreds and thousands of miles apart. So they'd move it to California. They'd produce one in Buffalo. They'd move one into the South. Uh, and they, they started carrying huge stockpiles. Well, what happens when they want to move back to flexible production is this means they're going to have to shut down a bunch of plants and lose the, the kind of fixed capital, the sunk capital they did in building those plants. They're going to have to break off ties with all these suppliers. Uh, the union is going to oppose shutting down these plants because it's going to lose, right? It's going to lose jobs. And they have to face the union. You also have to face uh, the management of those plants. Um, and, and so there's just this huge inertia to not shutting that down. All right. So that, that's the first barrier. The second one is when they did it, so they built Saturn's a great example. So instead of shutting down the existing system, they built a new car and they built it originally is a flexible production. So we're just going to start from scratch. 
The minute they do that, what happens is the workers use the structural leverage to shut down production and demand things, and they immediately shutter it and go back. They, they dismantle the flexible production, and they run Saturn as a regular company. Uh, and, and part of that, we argue, is maybe culturally, you know, they're, they're in such a battle with workers, they don't want to give up anything. But part of it is because they're not innovating, they can't afford any concession to workers, right? Whereas the Japanese companies can concede a little bit to workers and try to buy them off. The U.S. companies are in a position where they can't do anything because their entire profit margin depends on exploiting workers now and going to cheap labor. And so every time they try to re-implement this and the workers get a little bit of power, it reminds them, oh, wait, we can't do this. And so while they're trying to do it, they never fully implement flexible production. Uh, and so it's really this case of they've backed themselves into a corner and they would, in order to re-implement it, they would have to take losses up front and they would have to work, they'd have to work with the working class. They'd have to say, okay, we're going to allow you to have power and to help us manage this, right? And they're they're not, not going to do that. So how much did the U.S. auto industries, what seems like a horrible business model, undermine the U.S. auto industry relative, relative to the pressures that were put on the industry by the unions? Uh, I would say the vast majority is the business model. So we, we put a table up in the article it was from 1981, and it's actually the result of a study from MIT uh, from kind of business analysts, right? So these aren't leftists and these aren't pro-union people and they're just, they're trying to analyze why is the U.S. auto industry starting to lose market share. This is when they really start noticing is the late 70s, early 80s. And they list all the different costs for uh, Mazda and GM and Toyota or Nissan um, and Ford. And what we calculate is that wages and benefits make up for about 20, about a quarter of the differential between the Japanese companies and the American companies. 75% 75% then is the business model, right? So it takes way more hours to produce a car because it's not this efficient, trusted system where everybody's working together and it's close in. Uh, and that's 31% of the differential. Uh, just manufacturing costs because they're shipping it all over and, and they're not using efficient material, that's another 18%. And then they pay more for components because rather than having these long-term relationships with suppliers that are right next door, that are working with you, right, and they work with you to innovate, and you cut them deals, and they cut you deals. Uh, the, the U.S. auto industry by that time had been squeezing suppliers too, so they didn't have the relationship with suppliers. They didn't get the same deals, and so the cost of components is another quarter. And so this kind of business model they built up to defeat the union structural power accounts for at least at, 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 in 1981, 75 percent of the differential. It may be more at this point because over time there's been givebacks from the union, right? So one of the things, every time the government bails out the auto industry, what they really do is go in and squeeze the unions and make them give back things, right? That's what happened in 2008. Uh, it's not in this article, but in the book that the article's based on that we're writing right now, we have a chapter talking about that. And the people that negotiated the bailout were all Wall Street people. So there was a union guy who was, a, he was an ex-Wall Street guy and he went to work with, I believe, the Steelworkers Union, but I could be wrong on that. But he went to work with unions, and his job was to get the unions to agree to management demands. Right, that was his job. So characterizing him as a union guy seems a little bit iffy. So he negotiates it, and then a couple other Wall Street guys. And what they negotiate is just that the UAW is going to give back a bunch of what they had gained. And they're going to help. The, they're going to discharge bankruptcy for the, uh, the auto companies and help them close down a bunch of the plants that, you know, that there was pushback against closing. And so the labor difference is probably even less now because there's been give backs for the unions. But in 1981, 75% of it wasn't union cost differential. So 
<clears throat> excuse me, uh, did the U.S. auto industry or U.S. auto companies dismantle then the same flexible production system that they could have used in competing against foreign imports when they finally did come here into the U.S. market in the 1970s? Did anti did this anti-worker focus undermine the U.S. auto industry when it compete when it comes to competing within the global market? Right. Yeah. And so what 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 is really kind of instructive is that Toyota, what they've done, they produce all over the world now, right? But what they do is they bring the entire flexible production to the country they're going to. So within the U.S., they will bring their assemblers, their suppliers, and everything, and create that geographical concentration and have a self self contained flexible production thing in California, in Tennessee. Uh, and so they've been able to manage that same system, whereas the U.S. right doesn't have that. And, and so the question is why, right? Why didn't why haven't workers for Japanese companies, workers for European companies, why haven't they used that structural leverage to demand, you know, more more of their fair share of the surplus and gotten to the point where those companies also decided it's not worth it, we're going to dismantle it. Uh, and it's not, this isn't exactly clear, right? But I kind of see two, two um, reasons. One reason is kind of the consciousness of the importance of flexible production. So the U.S. companies stumbled upon this, right? They're, they're kind of, in the early auto industry, before the Depression, it's trial and error, and companies are springing up, and suppliers are springing up, and it's just building... They're building it up and using what works. And there's no conscious idea of we have to have this specific structure, right? So when they're getting rid of it, they know they want to get rid of the structural leverage. But I don't know that the, the automakers really had an idea that they were getting rid of their ability to innovate, right? And, and they don't really see that it's a problem for another 20, 25 years. There's no foreign competition. So all three of them collude to get rid of it at the same time, right? They get, they get rid of it by the, by the early 50s. And then from the 50s to the 70s, they're making massive profits, just advertising, styling differences and not, not innovating. And so from their perspective, they kind of see it as like, this isn't a big deal, right? And it's not until it's too late that they realize, oh, wow, crap, we can't innovate. Uh, whereas the Japanese, uh, Yushi Toyota came in 1950 and saw Ford River Rouge, and he copied it. He says, this is fantastic. And he copied it consciously that this flexible production system is a great system and we're going to build it in Japan and improve it. And so when it came time to decide what to do with worker structural leverage, I think the Japanese also had this idea that we have to keep this system in place. We put it in place for a reason. And so that leads to a different mindset. That's one aspect, right? The other aspect of it is just, uh, it has to do with the history of kind of relations with with labor. So in, in both cases, when the U.S. and the Japanese first implement flexible production, there's massive uh, labor resistance because while flexible production gives them structural leverage, it's also incredibly exploitive, right? Mass, massive speed up of the lines, um, kind of control of the work. They expect worker buy-in. So, you know, part of that is nice. The workers have more say, but they really have to uh, play a part in helping to innovate. Uh, and they're not getting paid a lot. And so, in Ford, what the workers did is they just said, well, this isn't worth it. We're getting paid nothing, and we have to work so hard. And they started quitting or just not showing up to work. And in 1914, there was 400% turnover. And that's what led Ford to do the $5 a day, right? So he says, okay, I have to buy them off. So it makes them have buy-in to the company. So when he gives them huge wages and he gives them lifetime employment, his version of that was, we'll lay you off, but when we make money again, we're going to hire you specifically back at your wage, right? So it's, it's not a permanent layoff. 
it's this uh, it built this idea of shared suffering and share reward. When we're suffering, you suffer too. But when we get our money back, we'll share. Same thing happens in Japan when they first implemented in 1950. By 1953, there was this massive strike at Toyota, almost takes Toyota down. Now they crushed the strike, but they do the same thing Ford did. They say, okay, we have to buy them off. So they give them better wages, right? among the best wages in Japan. They give them lifetime employment. They give them all of these things, what we call the effort bargain. Now, the difference here, right, what, what explains the differing kind of path, is that when the Depression hit in the U.S., they broke that effort bargain. They, they laid everybody off. They cut wages. And then when they started making money again in 36, they didn't give the money back. They didn't rehire the same people. They only raised wages a little bit. And so that kind of set the workers to, to not trust them, right? We can't, we can't trust. The buyoff doesn't work anymore because at any point you're going to stab us in the back. And so now we're using our structural leverage and we're going to ensure our share of the surplus. In Japan, that's never happened, right? There was nothing that happened that made them break that effort bargain. So that buyoff is still working. They're not mobilized. They're not radicalized. And I think that explains a large part of why Japan hasn't gotten to a point where they face the decision of giving up on innovation in order to hurt work for power because the workers aren't using their power. Uh, whereas in the U.S., we do have this history that the capitalist class stabbed the workers in the back once they made that agreement. The workers aren't going to ever trust them. So anytime they give them any power, the workers are going to use that power to make sure they don't get screwed. And right, one of the big lessons here is capitalists are willing to hurt themselves and cut their own profit if it means winning the class war. That doesn't mean taking power away from workers. And that's amazing to me because you'd think that their folks would be completely on the bottom line. But it doesn't right. seem. But it doesn't seem like it's on the bottom line. So let me ask you that: Is it best for a company's better line, bottom line, to have that kind of confrontational relationship with workers, keeping the uh, management in power, disempowering uh, the potential for labor organization? How good is that for their bottom line? You would think that it must be great for their bottom line if they continue to pursue this strategy that uh, undermines workers' rights. Right. Well, you know, I think for a specific company in an industry, it's not necessarily. Um, and when we see this with the U.S. companies, that they've lost you know, half of their market share over the last 30 years. Um, they've, their only reason they still exist is the government bailed them out and helped them, right? Otherwise, they would have just gone out of business. Uh, but for the capitalist class, maybe better, because what we've seen during the exact same time period is a massive increase in income inequality, right? So income inequality, high income inequality is kind of the norm in the U.S., and we got fooled by the period, the post-war period in, you know, in 1945 to 1970. We had historic equality. It wasn't equal, but it was the most equal we've ever been, and that's largely because of unions, union power. Uh, but starting in 1970 to now, there's just been a steady increase in income inequality to the point that recent studies have suggested we have higher income inequality right now in the U.S. than we've ever had, right? You go back to the 1700s, and it's higher now than it was then, which is astounding. So the capitalist class, right, the, the elite, they're getting that money. They've transferred the money. So somewhere that has to be good for them. Uh, and so... Right. It, it depends how we're thinking about it. I think for a specific company, it might not be great. For the class as a whole, it seems to be great. For society as a whole, it's terrible. As we see what happened to Detroit and Flint, right? We see what happened to Buffalo, St. Louis, all of these old uh, production centers. They're suffering, and, and it's not just the old workers that are suffering. The entire city, the entire you know city, and all those inhabitants are suffering. Um, and so that that's where I think one of the lessons is that. 
specific businesses, the capital class is a class. It's not just a business, right? And when we think in terms of atomized businesses, oftentimes the actions the class takes don't make sense, right? Individual businesses and industries will take losses if it's good for the class as a whole, if it's good for the people at the top. Uh, and that doesn't make sense from kind of the, the economist's point of view that looks at businesses as separate and not working together, then this makes no sense at all. So despite management's war on unions that hurt the auto industry, the war on unions did go on. So, and I think you may have just kind of answered this, who profited from the U.S. auto industry's war on unions? Or was the auto industry blinded to any negative impact its war with unions was having on their bottom line by the industry's own thick-headedness? Is the only profit that was made by management's increased uh, power over the unions. Uh, it, was that the real profit that was made, not in money, but in power? I think so. I think so. So I think that they are definitely, in, in an immediate sense, of the profit for their company and, and industry, they were blinded, right? And it, it, it's been bad, and it's killed it. Um, General Motors is worse off than if they kept flexible production. Uh, but I think that the class as a whole gained in power, including that the heart of kind of the labor movement in the United States was the auto industry, right? It was when the auto industry unionized, the rest of industrial America unionized. And when the auto industry started collapsing, the rest of industrial unionization collapsed too. And so in many ways, they, they were able to kind of target the heart of labor power and tear it out. And, and that is a great profit to the class. That is a great profit to, you know, the half of the 1%. Um, but in terms of thinking of it in terms of a company or an industry, I don't think that they profited. They hurt themselves. Um, and so the, it, it does raise this kind of level of analysis where you understand uh, there's a level above the corporation, right? So there might be managers at the corporation who are being thick-headed and hurting the company. And then there might be managers who are tied into this you know, larger class who sit, you know, sit on the board of this Council of Foreign Relations and the Business Roundtable and think, hey, these think tanks like Heritage and they're tied into something that's more than just their company. And I would argue that they profited, right? And they profited exactly, as you said, in terms of power, right? And power translates into other things. It translates in the ability to transfer billions of dollars from the working class to the top 1% and increase inequality, and it transfers into all sorts of things. You write, the premise of this portrait is wrong. The job migration supposedly triggered by foreign invasion and declining market share began in 1947, not in the 1970s. And that's the premise of the portrait that you say is wrong. 20 years before the imports arrived, at a time when the big three's domestic and world market share was rapidly expanding. By 1962, by 1962, we're not talking about 1967, we're not talking about the 70s yet, when imports were a measly 5%, 134,000 manufacturing jobs and 10% of the population had already been lost in Detroit. So did Detroit have a sudden fall happening immediately after the Detroit riots in 1967, as I remember the story going, or was Detroit already in a steady decline dating back to the end of World War II when the U.S. auto industry started exporting Detroit jobs? Exactly. And so then it's one of the strongest pieces of evidence that this kind of uh, massive job loss wasn't uh, response to foreign competition. It wasn't a response to the Detroit to the riots, right? Which has been two narratives that have been put forth that the the movement of jobs and the movement of population started years before that. 
Uh, and so it was already on the passenger line. And if you kind of look at it from our perspective and in, in the, the structure of production and that tie to innovation and productivity, then it was cementing the decline, right? It, it may have it may have taken a bit. It may have been a steady decline at first, and it fell off the cliff later, right? But that cliff was coming no matter what once they set that in motion, once they dismantled flexible production, once they moved those jobs out, once they decided that they were willing to kind of cut off their nose to spite their face, right, to, to kill that innovation in order to hurt the unions, Detroit was going to decline. Um, and so all the decline that happened after that was set in place before that. And, and it often that's where I, when I was saying earlier that where do you start the historical analysis matters so much. You start the historical analysis in 1967, then you're naturally going to point to the riots as the reason for all of the decline that happens after 1967. But if you started early, you realize that it was set in place before the riots. And so it's important to kind of go way back into the history and see how the steps were taken much earlier. And what we observe later is just the result of those steps. You also point out that uh, they actually employed a lot of these kind of concepts uh, in another factory, and it worked out great. You write, when confronted with the indisputable differences in production efficiency, U.S. manufacturers, supported by loyal journalists and scholars, offered a slightly amended greedy union analysis, arguing that the extra hours of production in the assembly and component plants resulted from the work rules and other unproductive behavior imposed by the UAW and its members. But you point out how this was disproven in the mid-1980s. Toyota took over the Fremont plant in Fremont, California, one of GM's worst, a factory known for sex, drugs, and defective vehicles. And as part of an historic joint venture, Toyota turned the plant into one of GM's best practically overnight. There was no magic to this transformation, except the use of the flexible production system, which included delivering the union wages and benefits to the very same workers that GM had blamed for their production inefficiency. The experiment definitively demonstrated that the ossified, inefficient production system and not overpaid, disruptive union workers was at the root of the cost of production crisis. Did the U.S. auto industry learn their lesson and suddenly start paying their workers more and employing the flexible production system? No, and, you know... Part of this is that the pay helps, but it's not just the pay. It's also that the, the flexible production system, right, in, in order to work, the workers can't be disruptive. They can't use that structural leverage to disrupt things. So they have to have a buy-in to the system. They have to feel a part of it. And so there's all of these uh, mechanisms that are put in to actually give the worker some voice on the shop floor, right? So there's things like pull cords. If the worker sees something wrong, they can pull the cords and stop the line and they'll come talk to them and figure it out. And these ways, so they have a say in the innovation, they have a buy into the company. Uh, and that's the part that the U.S. the U.S. just they won't do. They won't give the workers a voice because they part of giving the workers a voice means that the workers are going to take a little bit, right? They're going to, you can't speed it up quite as much. You have to pay them a little bit more. You have to give a little bit more benefits. There's concessions that happen that are demanded. And they, they're at a point that they can't afford it, right? where the Japanese companies can afford to give a little bit to get a lot more back. And we, you could, from the working class point of view, you could critique that, right? That the Japanese are giving half measures to make people happy so that they can get billions in profits. But the, the important point to realize is those half measures are making the workers happy. It is enough, and it is better than what the U.S. is giving. They can't afford to give the half measures anymore because they have a lower quality product. They don't innovate. They can't... They can't um, they can't compete on the basis of efficiency. So they have to only compete on the basis of exploiting workers. 
Uh, and so uh, did they learn the lesson? I, I think they, I think so. I mean, I can't say for sure, right? I'm not in their head. Maybe not. But I'd imagine, yeah, I think they know what's going on. They just can't do it. And so one of the things that I noticed is this people have a tendency to come up with justifications for behavior that they have to do, right? So if, if you're a soldier and you're, you're in Iraq and you, you have to kill civilians, you start to come up with justifications for why killing civilians, killing those civilians isn't that bad. If you weren't in that position, you might not do that, right? So, so we have a tendency to look at what people say and to think that's leading to what they do. And I think oftentimes people come up with something after because they're forced to do it. And I think the same things happen with the auto industry. They come up with a bunch of uh, justifications for why they do what they do to the workers, for why they produce things the way they produce, for why they're not being innovative. You know, they talk about risk and being more conservative, uh, but that's only because they can innovate. Um, and, you know, if you look kind of historically at what the CEOs say, it's, it's, it's very uh, telling that. GM was known as the most innovative company while they were doing flexible production. And the minute they got rid of flexible production, all of the business press talked about how they're a very conservative company. I don't think that that, right, that's not because of their ideological viewpoint. They're conservative because they can't innovate. They were innovative. They were risk takers before because they could. And so I think that they know what they need to do. They're just not willing to do it. They're not willing to give workers that sort of power. We have been speaking with sociologist Joshua Murray, with sociologist Michael Schwartz. They are co-authors of the Catalyst magazine article, Collateral Damage, How Capital's War on Labor Killed Detroit. Our guest this morning has been Joshua, who is assistant professor of sociology at Vanderbilt University and is affiliated faculty at Vanderbilt Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions. This article appeared at the new journal Catalyst. You can find out more about Catalyst by going to Jacobin Magazine's own website, jacobinmag.com, as they are the ones who are publishing this new journal. One last question for you, Joshua, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question you might, we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So uh, are foreign car companies simply better at making cars, even in the U.S., and better for U.S. auto workers than U.S. automakers are? Let me phrase that a different way. If you were an auto worker in the United States, would you rather work for a U.S. auto company or would you rather work for a foreign car company? So let me give you two answers. The simple answer is yes, the foreign company is better. Not, not for any inherent reason, but because they're using a better production system that allows them to give concessions to workers where the U.S. won't. Uh, but the more complicated answer is I would work where there's a union. Right. The, the, I would say that there's no there's no such thing as an inherently better job. A job is good when labor has power and makes it good. So the foreign companies, if given any opportunity, will happily squeeze workers and not pay them also. Right. An example is Toyota also has shipped jobs uh, into you know places like Mexico and the Philippines where wages are lower and have the same system and paid workers lower. Uh, so there's no capitalist company that's not happy to exploit workers if given the opportunity. The only way it's a good job is if workers band together and make it a good job. So that's my more complicated answer. Joshua, I really appreciate you being on the show with us this week. I'm looking forward to your book coming out, and I'll stay in touch with you because we definitely want to have you back on the show when you put out the book, and it will have even more information, I'm certain. Thank you so much for being on This Is Hell this week. Thank you for having me on. It was wonderful. Thanks.
if you want to get really irritated, you got to hear about what's happening in Detroit post-bankruptcy. Journalist Laura Gottesteiner has written the uh, Tom Dispatch piece, To Detroit, Separate and Unequal, A Journey Across a City Divided. Welcome back to This Is How, Laura. Thanks for having me. Laura is the author of A Dream for a Close, Black America, and The Fight for a Place to Call Home. You start writing about being driven around Detroit's well-heeled uh, Palmer Woods neighborhood, a neighborhood that has defined rich in Detroit for generations. It's up on Woodward, uh, nearly out of the city, between seven and eight miles, just across Woodward and a little south from the state fairgrounds. And if you don't think there is a wealthy neighborhood in Detroit, Take uh, Go to the virtual walking tour of uh, Palmer Woods at palmerwoods.org, and you will see that there are amazingly wealthy neighborhoods still in Detroit. You write that the guy giving you the tour is Commander Dale Brown, founder of Threat Management, a private security company. Brown's officers, with their distinctly paramilitary aesthetic, are among the most recognizable of a burgeoning number of private security personnel and surveillance systems scattered across neighborhoods in the former Motor City that people with money have decided are worth protecting. Does his firm have the same kind of oversight or restrictions regular police do? Can they perform the same duties? Do they get the? Did you get that impression? Well, I think it's important to say they don't have the level of impunity that the police, the public police, do in this country. So you know, we're obviously we're in a moment right now where the widespread impunity and the killings of public police all across the country is being protested and challenged very vocally um, by people right now in New York, where I live. um, We're protesting against the killing of Eric Gardner. But, you know, we've been seeing the ongoing protests for months now, more than 100 days now in Ferguson. The private security companies that you're seeing in Detroit, from what I can understand, don't enjoy the level of impunity that the Detroit Public PD does enjoy, um, and the NYPD, and on and on and on, LAPD. What they have instead of impunity is an incredibly lucrative business model, which is they enjoy uh, billions of dollars coming from either corporations or neighborhood associations to patrol and protect and guard and exclude the people who live in the city of Detroit. So you were seeing, you know, threat management, I think, is a an interesting example because it works both with very upscale neighborhood associations like Palmer Woods and Sherwood Forest, but it also works with community groups like Michigan Welfare Rights Organization to secure, to provide security for their events uh, free of charge or at a very low cost. So threat management was an interesting one that I was following that really straddles both worlds of Detroit. And that's why I wanted to follow Commander Dale Brown, because he actually was one of the few people who sees the two worlds that Detroit is becoming, has been for a long time, and the bankruptcy is even accentuating further. But you're also seeing private security firms, private surveillance firms that are not interested at all in supporting the grassroots community groups. They are only interested in securing, for example, the downtown district of Detroit, which is, depending on who you ask, either undergoing you know, what people call a revitalization process or a gentrification process, but you'll see the New York Times praising. But when you actually talk to people who have lived in Detroit for a very long time, uh, people who have organized in Detroit and community leaders in Detroit, they'll say that a billionaire came into the city of Detroit, bought up all of downtown and installed hundreds of security cameras and put a private security guard on every corner and said, 
only middle-class white gentrifiers are allowed into this area and everybody else should get out. So the issue of security, private security, and the direction that Detroit is taking post-bankruptcy, I think, is a very interesting story that few people are really scrutinizing because, you know, especially as an out-of-towner, I'm not from Detroit, when you look at the national news, you see only, oh, Detroit's out of bankruptcy. This is a great thing. We all want Detroit to be out of bankruptcy. But the truth of the matter is Detroit never had to be into bankruptcy to begin with. And now that it's coming out of bankruptcy, it's coming out with a very explicit series of blueprints that are turning into one of the most unequal and most underserved cities in the United States. Yeah, and then when they brought in the emergency manager, Kevin Orr, he was from the uh, largest bankruptcy firm in the country. That's what he does for a living. He's a bankruptcy lawyer. So when you put somebody in charge of the city as the emergency manager uh, who is a bankruptcy lawyer, guess what he's going to suggest the city goes through? And guess what he's not going to be against? And that would be bankruptcy. Uh, A couple of questions on what you were saying. How much do you think these wealthy neighborhoods are overreacting because we had a gentleman on the show, an anthropologist by the name of, I think it was Lowell, I might be getting it wrong, Bergman. He uh, wrote a book about, uh, as an anthropologist, he was living in Detroit and I was telling him about my experience. I uh, was born in Detroit and raised in East Detroit, right on the other side of eight eight mile from Detroit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was telling him how the impression that people have of Detroit when you're somebody who lives in the suburbs and even the impression that people have out, uh, you know, who live out state, they all have this impression that, you know, at any moment you're going to be shot or robbed or something horrible is going to happen to you in Detroit. And he said, you know, there's a real over-exaggeration of how bad it is in Detroit. There, the sense of fear in the city is not as great as people think it is. How much do you think that these private security uh, firms might be an overreaction to the problems that Detroit is facing when it comes to policing? Well, I think that you're certainly right in the sense that the misconceptions of Detroit by people in the suburbs, largely white, largely white people in the suburbs, largely families who fled generations ago into the suburbs, as well as people from across the country, people like myself who are not from Detroit, that there is a huge media bias and misconception about what's going on in the city. And I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I think it's important to really frame any conversations like this where we're not painting the city as some sort of dystopia. The reality is, you know, hundreds of thousands of people live in the city, work in the city, raise their families in the city. The problem is that the city is is vastly underserved, is underserved to the point by the by the city government, by the state of Michigan, underserved to the point that the United Nations came in recently and said there are pretty serious human rights violations going on in the city because the city has systematically cut off water to tens of thousands of people this year. So it's a tricky thing to talk about Detroit. You know, I, as a journalist, I was very hesitant to do it until, uh, you know, some organizers who were organizing the United Nations visit invited me to come up and actually tag along with the officials when they were investigating human rights violations of the water shut I was hesitant to do it because you're navigating this space where there's been so much propaganda about Detroit being an insecure place. There's so much propaganda about it being a dangerous place. And, all, and we know, and it's quite clear, that all of this propaganda is incredibly racially motivated, is incredibly racist and targeted. So are the private security firms an overreaction to this racist propaganda? Probably. I think it's also important to say the Detroit 
police department has very, very serious problems, which community organizers have been organizing against for a long time. There's a combination of the fact that they act with impunity in the same way that police departments across the country act with impunity. And because of the budget shortfalls in the city of Detroit, they also have experienced, I mean, they've been posting wait times. If somebody calls 911, they've been posting, you know, arrival times of 58 minutes. Um, that number has gone down in the last year or two, I'd say. But, you know, in 2013, when they did an investigation, if you called the police and it cost, and it took an average of 58 minutes for them to show up, it definitely changes the way people who would even call the police to begin with think about the police. And then there's a huge amount of residents who would never call the police to begin with because the police kill people and act with impunity, largely against African-American residents. So I think the important thing that we need to understand about the private security is the way that it's both a reaction maybe to this fear and this propaganda about residents in Detroit, but it's also part of this increasing privatization of the city. And that's something that I was hearing from organizers over and over again, that what we're seeing coming out of the bankruptcy is an increasing privatization of particularly the downtown areas, particularly the parks. A lot of them are now under public-private partnerships, being patrolled by private security guards. People are not being able to exercise their First Amendment rights, even basic things like, like asking people to sign petitions. Private security guards are forcing people out or threatening people with arrest. These are in what are sensibly public parks that the city's tax dollars paid for. So what we're seeing is this privatization in a city where that is leading to increasing, increasing exclusion, largely of the African-American population who has maintained this city for the last 50 years. They're the ones who have built the city, who have kept the city running, who have kept it a viable place to live in the absence of a functioning state power. And now we're seeing privatization and we're seeing exclusion of that very community. So I think that's where we really need to understand what surveillance, what private security means in the city right now when you look at the overall blueprint, which is really to pick some neighborhoods that continue to get services and then essentially shut services down in the vast majority of neighborhoods. Or, you know, as a lot of professors were telling me, create a situation where there's a very sharp two-tiered service structure. So the majority of residents in the city of Detroit receive such basic city services, some fire, some public police, you know, some demolition of vacant properties, and essentially nothing else. And then you have the wealthier neighborhoods that can pay for extra services, and you have the surrounding white suburbs that can pay for extra services. And what you're seeing is obviously vast disparities in socioeconomic status, but also vast racial disparities when you look at the population of Detroit versus the surrounding suburbs. And all of it is incredibly, incredibly troubling, especially when this bankruptcy is being hailed in the international media and the national media as this great solution for the problem of Detroit. You know what it was reminding me of when I was reading your piece is it reminded me of 
when the Bush administration uh, was talking about going to war in Iraq and then afterwards and was talking about, during the occupation was talking about how you needed market economics, you need capitalism, you need to have a free and open market. And they were talking about this kind of neoliberal state that they wanted to build from scratch. They were going to tear down the old Iraqi state. There wasn't going to be publicly owned gasoline or any type of public utilities. They were going to open up the market so all these foreign corporations could come in and, quote unquote, help them with their infrastructure that we've bombed and uh, help them with their infrastructure so they could get it back up on its feet. And there was this whole idea that the entire country would be privatized and we'd finally have this wonderful ex- uh, experiment in privatization and neoliberalism. And this was going to be the framework for the rest of the Middle East because you're going to see how great democracy operates within this. Am I off base in comparing what's going on within Detroit to what happened with the Bush administration's economic policies and the way that they were doing nation building within Iraq? I don't think you're off base. I think I don't think it started with Iraq. I think we saw great efforts in the 70s to try to implement these types of neoliberal policies, especially in South America. So you saw it in Chile, which now enjoys one of the most expensive and most unequal uh, private education systems, lower education, high, higher education, university level in the world. Um, you see an incredible class inequality in that country and in a lot of countries where you know, the IMF, the World Bank, and the United States, the Chicago boys, really tried to push this neoliberal agenda. Then they went over to try to do it, obviously, in the Middle East, starting with Iraq, forcibly occupying the country, killing hundreds of thousands of people in order to try to implement this policy. Clearly, if we look at what's going on over there, that policy failed. It was rejected by people who live there, by Iraqis, by neighbors, uh, who are now fighting a very complicated uh, conflict to regain control of that area, um, which is not my specialty, so I won't go into it. You know, and and obviously they have tried to implement these types of blank slate neoliberal policies here in the United States. And I think you are on point to say that that's something that they're trying to do in Detroit. The problem with trying to do it in Detroit, as was the problem with trying to do it in Chile and South America, as was the problem with trying to do it in Iraq and the Middle East, is people have lived in Detroit for generations and are very well organized and are rejecting these neoliberal policies. So, you know, when I was there, I spent two weeks doing uh, reporting on the private policing and a week and a, a long weekend following around the UN. And I ran into dozens, if not more, of community organizations that are incredibly well organized saying, we're not going to let this happen in our city. So, you know, Michigan Welfare Rights Organization, for example, is doing incredible work to fight against the neoliberal policies. People's Water Board is a massive coalition of grassroots organizations that is fighting the shutoffs of water, the mass water shutoffs, and fighting for the human right to water. There's dozens of organizations who are fighting the privatization of the school system because, you know, lots of people I interviewed, for example, I was in an interview in in Sherwood Forest, which is uh, sort of similar to Palmer Woods in that it is uh, one of the really elite enclaves of the city. And I was talking to a few of the members who run the Neighborhood Association who did seem preoccupied with the direction Detroit was going, even though they knew that they were somewhat insulated because they had full private security, their property values were stabilized, they were, you know, most of the neighborhood is employed at this moment, which is a massive problem in Detroit. The 
you know, unemployment. But, you know, we were talking about the direction of the school system. And finally, one of the women said, you know, I've got to be honest, I'm not sure we're going to have a public school system in 10 years. And the room just went silent because it's true. They are trying to implement uh, a massive charter school system, which they've done in other country, uh, in other cities in the United States. The public school system has been under emergency management for more than a decade now. The And the school board is desperately trying to get this emergency manager out. They've been organizing for a very long time, but it's very hard to do so when the governor's office in, in Michigan is really doing these targeted racial attacks on all of the African-American cities in Detroit. Uh, sorry, in Michigan. It's not Detroit. Um, so the issue, I think, at this moment is, yes, there is an attempt from the governor's office. There's an attempt from sort of Wall Street. There's an attempt from the broader nation to, to turn Detroit into this blank slate, new neoliberal project. And I think that's where you also get a lot of this national media that shows simply vacant houses, that shows simply burnt out houses and burnt out blocks to try to put in our minds that people don't live in Detroit. And so anything can be done there. It's sort of this great opportunity to try a new project. That's so far from the reality. And I think the one thing that I'll say from spending time with these activists who are with these community organizers who are fighting to keep Detroit a livable place, a place that respects human rights, and a place that honors the legacy of the people who are living there and, and gen for generations now, is this neoliberal project, in my opinion, is probably is not going to be successful because there are so many people who are organizing on the ground. It is, in, it is being pushed incredibly strongly by the governor's office, by Snyder's office, being pushed incredibly strongly by Washington, by New York, by the White House. But I don't think it's going to be fully successful. What I think we need to figure out how to do is people who are outside of Detroit, who don't support this neoliberal agenda, who don't support this whitewashing and this erasure of what the city has been and who has actually built the city, we need to figure out how to support the people who are on the ground in these grassroots organizations fighting to keep the city a livable place where the people who already live there, the families who already live there, can continue to live there. There's this great effort to repopulate Detroit. But it's incredibly specific what they mean by repopulation. And simultaneously with this effort to repopulate Detroit, largely with white gentrifiers, there's an effort to push everyone who has lived in Detroit for a long time out of Detroit. So, for example, you're seeing these tax foreclosures at this moment where people are losing. There was an incredible wave, obviously, of bank-pursued foreclosures that began even earlier, uh, beyond before 2008. It began really in 2005, 2006, because the city was so awash in racially predatory mortgages, uh, subprime mortgages that were specifically targeted at African-American communities. It was so awash in that, that the crisis actually began much earlier. quarter of a million people were pushed out between 2005 and 2010 through bank-pursued foreclosures. And now what we're seeing is this wave of tax foreclosures where people are losing their houses because they're behind on their taxes by like sometimes $1,000, $500, $2,000. It's clearly a situation where the city and where the governor's office has decided we want specific people out and we want new people to come in. And that's something that community groups are fighting very, very strongly. And people who are outside Detroit who object to that manner of massive displacement 
also need to figure out how to organize in solidarity and support the people in the city of Detroit who are fighting against that. But clearly this idea, this concept of uh, two Detroits um, is obviously going to exacerbate wealth disparity. It's going to exacerbate uh, racial tensions. So why do you think that you're not hearing anything from, say, President Obama about being against this kind of policy that's happening with bankruptcy in Detroit, seeing as how he's been making all these statements about how he wants to see a lessening of racial tension when he's remarking about Ferguson and how he wants to see less wealth disparity? What explains the White House clearly being supportive of the policies that are taking place inside of Detroit when it comes to post-bankruptcy Detroit and this disparity of wealth and even raising of racial tensions. What explains the White House not having a more, you know, pro-people agenda here in Detroit? I think that it's very clear that there's a gap between the rhetoric coming out of the White House and the reality of the policies being pushed by the White House. So, to speak to your reference on Ferguson and on the massive you know, wave of protest coming out against police brutality, obviously there's a huge gap between the White House saying, okay, we need body cameras on all of these police officers, we're going to invest in that, and what people in the streets are actually demanding, which is a lack of impunity and an end to police murder. So, you know, Eric, I, I'm, I live in New York, Eric Gardner was murdered by NYPD in an illegal chokehold that was caught on camera. And, you know, the murderer, the police officer, was just not indicted. So the person who did film it, actually, who filmed this murder, was indicted, which it is legal to film the cops. It is not legal for a cop to put a person in an illegal chokehold and murder them. So, I mean, you know, if we're talking about sort of the doublespeak coming out of the White House, that's something that we could talk about on pretty much any topic, whether it's about police brutality, whether it's about immigration, whether it's about economic changes or economic inequality. In the Detroit-specific situation, I think that the White House made it clear which side it was standing on, on the issue of Detroit and the issue of the economic crisis in Detroit, because there are serious economic issues in the city, not always as grave as sometimes opportunistic bankruptcy lawyers and and the like make it seem. But, you know, the White House sort of made their specific stand when they did the bailouts for the auto companies. And what happened there was Chrysler and GM and the big three got bailed out at the same time, more or less, than the banks got bailed out. And it was a a very big bailout that said publicly, we are not going to let American manufacturing fall. We are not going to let Detroit fall. What actually happened with the big three auto bailout was they said, we are not going to let these corporations that make cars fall, but we are going to throw the workers under the bus. And so what happened was part of the bailout was an agreement that all new workers would take essentially a 100% pay cut. So they come in now at half of the salary that older, already working auto workers were receiving. I believe the cut was something like $28 an hour to $13 an hour. So what it did, and it also was accompanied by you know pension cuts, by benefits cuts, by all these cuts that were constitutionally protected by the city, by the state of Michigan. So what that bailout essentially did was say, we're going to ensure that the United States continues or 
American-based companies continue to make cars. But we are not going to continue to ensure and protect and guarantee that working to make cars, that actually being one of these people who works in the factories that manufactures the cars, that puts these cars together, an engineer that supervises that, any of those jobs is a job that you can raise a family on and that you can create a, you know, a stable middle-class life with. So that pushed a good amount of people and a, good, and a whole other generation that's coming up in Detroit and the Detroit suburbs right now into a situation where they were seeing that as a middle-class job and now it's a very precarious low-wage job. And from there, I think the White House has been pretty consistent in its policy towards Detroit and the region, which is to say, we're going to not let the companies fall. We're going to not let the city government collapse, but we're not necessarily going to step in and intervene on the part of the people. And if they were going to do that, they would have never made that deal with the big three auto workers, I mean, the big three auto companies, and they similarly would have stepped in and declared an immediate moratorium on foreclosures and evictions, and at least in the city of Detroit, if not nationally, because the way that the foreclosure crisis, which, you know, we've seen all the settlements, we've seen all the leaked documents, we've heard all the testimonies, it's very clear that the banks broke every single law, every single finance law, and every single, you know, civil rights law in the book. If When the White House didn't come out and declare a moratorium on foreclosures and evictions, that really was it taking a very hard line both about the future direction of Detroit as well as the future direction of, you know, the rest of the country and specifically dozens of cities that were, you know, that were and are largely African-American and were targeted viciously for these racially predatory loans. So, you know, yes, we're seeing double speak in terms of what the White House is saying and what the White House is doing, but I would argue that that's not at all a unique situation for Detroit alone. I think that's something that we've been seeing from the White House throughout the Obama presidency. Uh, we've been speaking with Laura Gattesdiener. She is a journalist and has written the Tom Dispatch piece to Detroit's separate and unequal, a journey across a city divided. And this is an amazing article, and everybody should go read this because there is a lot of stuff that we didn't even touch on in here. For instance, uh, Laura writes, as the city government has receded, a lack of services has made parts of Detroit all but uninhabitable. The injustices pile up, the threat that Child Protective Services will seize custody of children who are living in waterless homes. 27,000 homes had their water cut off. The streets upon streets of emptied houses, their roofs caving in, their porches collapsing, their bricks blackened by fire, the all-too-common violent deaths in neighborhoods without private security where residents must rely on a decimated police force that clocked an average response time of 58 minutes in 2013, the charade of public school board meetings where few decisions can be made because the school district is under the control of an unelected emergency manager. The, uh, the board has voted three times without success to fire the death of a seven-year-old girl at the hands of a Detroit police officer wielding a submachine gun as his unit was being filmed executing home raids for an A&E reality TV show. The heartbreak of watching the city being disassembled and sold off as if at an estate sale, despite the fact that this uh, Detroit has declared it will not die. There's amazing, and wow, you talk about Judge Rhodes and how Judge Rose said, 
you don't have any kind of right to access to water. And that's why the UN had to come in and explain to him, well, actually, that is a human right, that you have to have access to water. So there's a lot of amazing stuff in here, and people should go read this. Again, the article at Tom Dispatch. We have a direct link at our website, thisishell.com, to Detroit's separate and unequal, a journey across a city divided. Laura, one last question for you, and it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate the response. Is this development, is this kind of investment in Detroit, even though it makes two Detroits, even though it all goes into a downtown area that now has private security that chases away the untouchables, the unwanted people from the downtown area, is this at least, at the very least, better than nothing? That's a very complicated question that I think really depends on who you are. Um, And that's actually a question that I asked everybody um, because I went all across the city, interviewed people who had lived in downtown and had been pushed out. I interviewed people who were recently arrived in downtown. I interviewed people in wealthy neighborhoods like Palmer Woods. I interviewed people in less wealthy neighborhoods, I interviewed people who were living without water. I interviewed people who were large, you know, mostly people who were organizing against this neoliberal project in Detroit. And you get different answers wherever you go because it depends on your positionality. So, you know, when I was in Sherwood Forest, which is similar to Palmer Woods, I said, you know, people are saying that this is creating two Detroits that are so vast and so vastly unequal and so uh, separate that we're fulfilling the 1968 Kerner Commission. Uh, What do you think, you know? And people said, well, honestly, maybe two Detroits is better than one because the one we've had is simply just a poor city. And I was was very struck by that. But, you know, that was was their opinion. But as somebody who was going to be in one of the Detroits, largely the wealthier Detroit. You know, but when you speak to other people who are organizing against the water shutoff, who have had their water shutoff, or, or, or people who are were in unions who are facing pension cuts, or people who are in unions that, you know, I spoke to people who are in the Detroit sewage and water uh, department who work there, who are in the union, and they've had their water shut off. And because their wages are so low and because wow. the water bills are so high. So, you know, you speak to them and they say, this is insane that we're moving towards two separate and equal Detroits because the Detroit I live in is simply getting worse and worse and worse. And what does it matter to me if we have a thriving downtown? I think that we have to be, we have to reject this narrative that wealth trickles down or that a glitzy downtown somehow benefits everybody because, you know, Economists have proved that it's wrong. Sociologists have proved that it's wrong. Anthropologists have proved that it's wrong. Community organizers have proved that it's wrong. Human rights activists have proved that it's wrong. And everybody's lived experience has proven for the last 50 years that that narrative is false. We can put glitzy stadiums or glitzy buildings or nice Starbucks on the cover of the New York Times or on the cover of the Washington Post and say that Detroit has come back. But Detroit, the city, cannot be measured as coming back by what a four-square-block radius downtown looks like when tens of thousands of people, when children are living without water. 
And I think we need to be very clear that the mark of what it means for a community to be protecting itself and what it means for a city to be caring for the people who live in that city needs to be whether or not the residents are being are able to access their basic human rights. Nobody is asking for free water in Detroit. What people are asking for in Detroit is an ability to pay a water bill that is not two or three times higher than the national average. Not having their water cut off without their being being told. Not having their water being cut off when sometimes they're current on their bills. Not having to send their kids to school at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning because the schools have to open early in the winter without turning the heat on and turn the showers on in the gym because there's so many students who can't shower in their houses. So when you think about what that means for an American city that has enough water, that has an ability to deliver water to all of its residents, that has the infrastructure to do so and the money to do so, to say it's cutting off the water to its residents anyway. I think then we can't we can't say, well, two Detroits is better than just nothing, because it's not nothing. 700,000 people live in Detroit, and all of them have the right to access safe, potable drinking water, water to cook with, and water to shower with. And if we're not focused on that as a baseline of what we want out of a city, then I'm not really sure where our priorities lie as a society. Laura, believe it or not, that was probably the most hopeful report I've heard about Detroit in a really long time. And that is simply because I actually got to hear somebody talk about the community activism that's going on there and how they hopefully uh, will fight this kind of separation of two Detroits. Uh, I know that it sounded all very depressing and there was a lot of very... uh, unfortunate news within your report today, but at the same time, I'm so glad to hear that there are people who are fighting against this, and I hope that they're victorious because, you know, and this is the other thing that just reminds me of how the stupidity of uh, so much about Detroit. It became a one-industry town, and when that industry died, the city died, and now they're putting all of their money on one industry, and that's Quicken Loans downtown. And what happens if Quicken Loans, a mortgage company, what happens if that Quicken Loans goes under? A lot of people say that it will never will go under, but what happens if it does? Again, you're in a one-horse town, and all of a sudden, nobody, everybody's out of a job, and the major tax revenue that they're getting, uh, any tax revenue that they're getting from Quicken would be gone. Well, you know, I mean, we could talk about Quicken Loans. We could talk about its role in the foreclosure crisis, which we didn't get to. I think people should certainly dig into that. But, you know, I appreciate what you're saying. I appreciate you having me on. And I think the most important thing to do is, you know, when people hear about their neighbors, their friends, you know, fellow Americans living in a city without water, people get really outraged. And they say, what can I do? You know, and I think it's important if I want to leave your listeners with anything, it's go online look up People's Water Board and look up Michigan Welfare Rights Organization. They have been doing, Michigan Welfare Rights Organization has been organizing against mass water shutoffs since the 1990s in Highland Park, which is a city inside the city of Detroit. They are incredibly experienced community organizers that come from Detroit, that live in Detroit, that have been fighting for Detroit to be a habitable place that recognizes human rights for decades now. And so if you are listening to the show and wondering, How can I support people who are organizing for human rights in Detroit? Go online and check out People's Water Board and or or Michigan Welfare Rights Organization and support them in their struggle because Detroit doesn't need people from outside coming in and saying, I'm going to save the city like Dan Gilbert of Quicken Loans is. Detroit needs more people to say, I recognize how hard you are fighting. I recognize the work you are doing. And if I care about this issue, I want to support you in your fight for a habitable city, for a habitable home. 
So that's what I would leave your listeners with. Laura. People's Water Board and Michigan Welfare Rights Organization. Great having you on the show again. Really a pleasure. It's been about a year. You know that I have your email address, and I'm going to be bugging you in the future. So uh, good luck with your new book, and uh, I'll be speaking with you real soon. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks. Everything's getting better in Detroit, right? That's what everyone's telling me. But for some reason, I never hear about the foreclosure crisis and very little about the water crisis, which the U.N. called a human rights violation. Here to tell us what's happening with Detroit's crises that need addressing. Live from Detroit, Diane Feely posted the article, A Hurricane Without Water, Detroit's Foreclosure Disaster, at Black Agenda Report. Thanks for being on This Is Hell, Diane. Thank you for having us. Uh, this is uh, an amazing article, and I want to talk about that in just a second. But I am I've got the best gift that I have received in a very long time over the holidays, and it was a subscription to the Michigan Chronicle, a paper that I've been thoroughly enjoying. And right at the top of the last issue, uh, there's a headline that says Detroit is not a police state. It's by a uh, Bancoy Thompson, who is the Chronicle senior editor, and he is arguing that Detroit should not be a police state. This is about uh, the city council possibly passing a curfew uh, that would be happening this weekend, June 19th through 21st, for all children in Detroit under the age of 17. Can you tell me just a little bit about this uh, curfew? Because it seems like uh, the editor here is very upset about what's happening in Detroit. Right. The police uh, requested of the city council that they block out four days for having this curfew. Uh, the uh, reason being that uh, on Tuesday night there is a big uh, fireworks down on the Detroit River that uh, Detroit and uh, Windsor, Ontario do every year. Uh, they organized this uh, curfew last year and I think arrested something like 100 kids. Uh, who were supposedly uh, out without their parents, although in some cases their parents were there but not immediately there. At any rate, uh, the city council has turned down the request for the four days, uh, although they said they would go along with the curfew for the one day, but only at the uh, riverfront area, not in the city generally. Um, But, of course, many of us are concerned because you know, uh, kids under the age of 17 uh, like to go downtown and see the fireworks. And uh, what ends up happening is, of course, that the uh, poor end of the uh, kids in Detroit end up being picked up by the, the police and uh, have and their parents have to come down to the uh, precinct and, and post a, a bond to get their children out of hawk. Last week, we were talking to Karen Dolan of the Institute for Policy Studies. Uh, she kind of, she calls this type of thing uh, the criminalizing of poverty. Do you see a criminalizing of poverty within the uh, borders of Detroit? Yes, uh, and I think this is an example of uh, exactly that. So uh, I think the city council uh, understood that it was uh it was partly that, and so they, they cut down the request, but uh, it's really not necessary to have a curfew. Uh, there, there, there aren't big problems, and uh, this can be, uh, you know, 
kids will be fine. Uh, there's right. no reason for this curfew. Uh, and I got to say, I was a less than 17 year old who was attending those fireworks on a semi regular basis. And I certainly wouldn't want to end up in jail just simply because I took a bus downtown to watch fireworks. We are speaking right. to Diane Feely uh, live from Detroit. Diane is a retired auto worker active in Detroit eviction defense and an editor of Against the Current, a bi monthly analytical journal that focuses on debates within the left. She posted the article, A Hurricane Without Water, Detroit's Foreclosure Disaster, at the amazing Black Agenda Report, where our good friend Glenn Ford writes. You write, Detroit, where 85% of the working class once owned homes, has been suffering a waterless hurricane which is incredible, predatory uh, mortgage practices that disproportionately targeted African-American homeowners and inflated mortgages resulted in foreclosure on 25% of all residential buildings in the city between 2005 and 2011. 25%, one in four, vacancy escalated and blight blossomed. How would you characterize the compensation these people have received so far? Because these predatory practices are being prosecuted and mortgage companies are being fined. For instance, back in December 2011, when you were saying that 25% of all residential buildings in the city uh, are being foreclosed upon between 2005 and 2011, back in 2011, the Bank of America slash Countrywide were forced to pay a $335 million fine to the courts. So is that any is any of that... Are any of those penalties or fines, are they, I hate to use this word, because you know they're not, trickling down to the people? Very few. In very few cases, that's, uh, that's true. The, uh, the uh, money goes to, uh, in many cases, the, uh, the state, and then the state uh, dispenses them. And I only know of one case where uh, someone that we were working with was able to, uh, they were actually... Um, uh, they gave their money to somebody who they thought could buy the house back for them, and it was a scam. And the guy scammed many people. And in that particular case, he was tried, found guilty, and the attorney general allowed uh, the people to get their money back out of that, out of that uh, fund. But that's the only case that I've ever heard of wow. where someone who was victimized uh, actually uh, received any any help at all, and and in the federal funds uh, that had been given to the state of Michigan, um, there was about almost five hundred million dollars that was given to Michigan in two thousand and ten to help homeowners at high risk of foreclosure, and yet they've only provided one hundred and eighty eight million to help the homeowners. Twenty six million was spent on administrative expenses. Expenses twenty three million was uh, transferred over for blight removal, and 57% of all the applicants were uh, turned down. In many cases, uh, the people that we know of uh, said, you know, step forward, turn them down, either for bureaucratic reasons or because they were too poor. So, wait, so they're, they're spending money from... I just want to make sure I'm, I'm, I want to make sure I'm not getting this wrong. They're spending money that the federal government gave the state of Michigan that has been accrued through fines and penalties because mortgage companies and banks scammed people who were buying homes. They're using some of that money to tear down the foreclosed homes. Is that true? Well, yes, they, they make a big deal about blight in the city. Um, and it's true. Many of the homes that are, are left empty are uh, are uh, 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 there are scalpers that come in and steal everything, and the buildings are often burned, uh, so they're left as wrecks. 
But the point is, it's the foreclosure that had the impact on the blight. And the way we can uh, clean up the blight is by stopping the foreclosures, right. not by spending all this money to tear the buildings down. Uh, in fact, uh, the uh, it, it was uh, it was pointed out that by uh, Loveland Technologies, uh, which maps Detroit, that there's an 86 percent overlap between tax evictions and blighted homes. So tax foreclosure is the biggest source of blight, and we're faced with uh, probably something like 40,000 uh, occupied homes being foreclosed upon for taxes. In fact, they've already formally been foreclosed upon um, and would be sold off in September or taken over by the Detroit uh, Land Bank. So these are people who might already own the house outright. They may have owned it. It might have been an intergenerational home. And that often happens within the African-American community in Detroit. They hand off the the home to the next person. Also, uh, it's a big source of your wealth within the African-American community, and just like it is in anybody's community, is the home that you own. That's where you have a large source of your wealth. So... Uh, <laughs> It just seems like that everything that's happening in Detroit is the wrong thing to be doing to try to help people out. How much of this do you think is accidental? How much of this do you think is on purpose? Well, you know, I, I, I never think that people are dumb. I, I never assume that the government is dumb. Uh, so I assume that there's a purpose here. Uh, in fact, when they foreclose on these homes and they say, well, look at all this money that's owed. We have to get this this money back. Uh, Detroit needs money. So, uh, in fact, they have sold off many of the or they've tried to sell off uh, homes. OK, so uh, last year uh, they uh, sold off. Uh, they, they said that that it was owed. $691 million in unpaid taxes and penalties and interest because they charge 18% interest every year. Which is okay. ridiculous. That's in a ridiculously high amount of interest. That's Right. So, so then they auctioned them off, and they only raised $107 million. So they had a 15% recovery rate on the amount of money, and yet they also displaced residents and destroyed neighborhoods. So why would they do this? Well, uh, it, it seems to me that if you look at a plan that a number of the, uh, of the uh, large foundations have done, it's not a city plan, but it will be, a, it's kind of being carried out by the city. It's called the Detroit Future City. You'll see that there are large areas of the city that are empty, and they're planning on uh, putting uh, trees and water and lakes and so forth in the city. Uh, so they they want to clear this area either for development, um, if they think that it's if it's close to the river, for example, or if it's not, uh, they have other purposes for it. So they want to clear neighborhoods out. And in fact, I have a friend who lives in Northeast Detroit. There is no public school in that neighborhood, and yet that's the area of the city where there are more children per household than in any other area. <laughs> but they're forced to go to either uh, the gov governor's own system called the EAA schools or uh, to charter schools or private schools. 
Wow. So this, uh, my family, my grandmother lived over on uh, Chalmers and Mac, essentially. So it's essentially that neighborhood, right? Well, that's actually more the uh, the Lower East Side, and but that area is also scheduled uh, for destruction uh, as well. Uh, but I was really talking about like six mile, seven mile on the east side. That's really um, in the in the worst uh, situation in terms of uh, not having uh, parks, not having community centers. They've had a community center there closed down for a couple of years. The neighborhood has gotten together and fought against that and, and tried to to get money to open it. But you know the city says. Well, okay, if you want to have a, a park, that's fine. But then you have to go raise the money for the park. <laughs> so there has to be public-private parks. The park that I live uh, near, Clark Park, uh, I give money to them twice a year so that they can have programs there. It's supposedly a public park, but it only is able to stay open and have you know, uh, baseball in the summer and uh, ice skating in the winter because the residents contribute to significant amounts of money to keep the park open. And I've also heard about parks downtown where people think that it's a public park, but it's actually privately maintained, and then they have private security that's in charge of that park. Isn't that correct? Yes. And they're also, you know, they're they're developing many of these areas with uh, conservancies. So uh, the, your your public rights are very much uh, something that actually the ACLU is taking up. You know, can can for example there be a demonstration? I'm active in a group called Women in Black, and we dem- we have a silent demonstration once a month. And we carry signs, and uh, they've tried to deny our right to walk on the along the Detroit River, and we've been forcing them to uh, to change their policy. Well, we are speaking with Diane Feely. She is a retired auto worker, active in Detroit eviction defense, and an editor of Against the Current, a bi-monthly analytical journal that focuses on debates within the left. She's talking to us live from Detroit, and she posted the article, A Hurricane Without Water, Detroit's Foreclosure Disaster, at Black Agenda Report. And I want to make sure people understand, why is it so difficult for Detroiters to pay property taxes. You would think, you know, here's the stories that we're told on the outside, you know, uh, you can buy a home in Detroit for $100. Well, if you can buy a home in Detroit for $100, then the taxes on that must just be pennies a year. So why would there be so much trouble paying property taxes in Detroit when the value of the homes supposedly, we're being told on the outside, is so low? Well, actually, they're supposed to, according to uh, the Michigan rules, uh, reassess values, uh, house values uh, every year. But they haven't done that in Detroit in about 20 years. So we have very high taxes uh, in comparison to the suburbs. We've uh, checked and compared, in fact, on the Detroit Eviction Defense website, we actually have comparisons comparisons of houses in Detroit and houses in the suburb and what the difference in taxes are. And and our taxes are like three times higher at the very minimal um, than the uh, houses in the suburbs. In addition, uh, they uh, 
put an 18% uh, interest rate if you fail to pay your taxes. And they don't notify you about certain things. For example, people who are too poor to pay can fill out a form uh, and be excused from that. Now, Detroit is a poor city. We have somewhere between 25 and 50% unemployment. And the people who are working are making very little money. The average, uh, the median uh, in Detroit um, is something on the order of uh, less than $24,000. So uh, uh, child poverty, for example, is very high. It's 60%. Um, So we have all of these problems. Um, uh, and, and in addition, if you didn't pay your water bill, they stuck your water, ta- your water bill onto your property taxes. Now, in Detroit, we pay at least $70 per household for our water every month. And I was talking to a friend of mine in Champaign-Urbana, and he was saying, gee, we pay $23 a month. So our, our water bills are enormously high. Um, and we've we've said uh, there's the People's Water Board that has called for a water residential assistance, uh, uh, um, a, a water affordability act, so that people who don't make very much shouldn't have to pay that seventy dollars. Um, UN statistics and the um, uh, other uh, agencies, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, they all say, well, you should pay between 2 and 3% of your uh, monthly income on your uh, monthly water bill. So uh, actually, the city council passed a resolution that that's the way the water department should uh, bill people in Detroit, and uh, that was ruled illegal and never implemented. So we have this water residential assistance program that helps people afterwards and is inadequate. So um, last year they started turning off people's water, and and they've got about uh, several thousand people signed up to be on a uh, payment plan. But the problem is the payment plan is too high because what you're supposed to do is pay the $70 for your current water bill plus 10% of your overdue amount every month. Well, if you can't afford the $70, you certainly can't afford 80 or 90. So of the almost 25,000 that signed up to avoid water shutoffs, only 300 are current with their water bills. So there's going to be another round of shutoffs in Detroit. And these shutoffs, the U.N. have said it is, has said it is a human rights violation. If you go to the Detroit Water Brigade website, they have an article that shows a graph of how bad the water crisis is and report, quote, this financial report prepared for the city by an outside firm shows how the economic crisis of 2008 rapidly accelerated Detroit's financial decline. The crisis turned what would have been a slight downward trend in city water revenues into a death spiral of debt that ultimately drove the city into bankruptcy. Here is a quote from the report they're citing. During the nine fiscal years, from uh, fiscal year 2006 through fiscal year 2014, the reported total fund net position for the combined water and sewage systems has deteriorated by approximately $1.547 billion dollars. The report goes on to break down this decline and what caused it, particularly bad financial swap losses that from soured credit default swaps from the financial crisis amounting to about 
561 million or a third of the total losses. It goes on to say the Detroit Water and Sewage Department would actually be operating with positive financial health if it wasn't for the crisis. How much is the water crisis, something that many of our listeners may know about, how much is that responsible for Detroit's financial crisis? Well, actually, it shouldn't have even been considered uh, in the bankruptcy hearings because it's separate from uh, the city. But uh, to go into to prepare for bankruptcy, they, uh, I would say, inflated the figures of uh, the the all the the amount of money that was owed, uh, and in fact. Um, I think it's true around the world, not just in Detroit. Most of the crisis is caused by the banks and other lending institutions demanding incredible high fees and interest rates. So that's the problem compounded by the fact that in Detroit, very few people have decent jobs, even auto jobs. And there are there are some auto plants and auto parts plants in Detroit and in the Detroit area. Uh, but they don't pay what they used to pay. The manufacturing jobs have not only declined, but the rate, the average rate that uh, an auto worker makes is only $15.66, according to uh, 2013 statistics. So um, the, the fact of the matter is that the jobs are often temporary, two-tier, don't have benefits, um, or you're forced to go out of the city, uh, most uh, most Detroiters are not able to find jobs in the city. Something like 75% are forced to go outside of the city, and many of them work at McDonald's or at the malls. Um, and, and the best jobs uh, in Detroit are actually taken by people who come in from the sur- suburbs. They can afford to live in the suburbs. They're, they're forced to move there because... The schools are so poorly funded uh, in Detroit, and there are so few services that they move to the suburbs. So uh, it just makes the city poorer and poorer. So that's that's the problem that we have. And then we're expected to, uh, you know, to pay it incredible amounts in our insure our car insurance rates are, I think, the highest in the country. You know, I pay. $217 a month wow. to drive my car, whereas most people pay like $900 a year uh, to drive a, a, a car. So everything, you know, you can buy a house for, uh, I don't know, $100 or $500, although there's nothing inside of it. Right. Um, but there are all kinds of problems like high taxes, high insurance rates, and a lack of services. And I believe that the lack of services is done to deliberately drive people into uh, the suburbs, the nearby suburbs. So it's uh, it's clearing out Detroit. We it, in 2000 we had almost a million people. By 2010 we had 712,000. So essentially, a quarter of the population left in a 10-year period. And now it's down to 680,000. So you're looking at since, 2000, since 2010, it's been about 500 people every month are leaving the state still or leaving the uh, city, too. So it's still continuing on. Now, you write um, one should note that Detroit paid one hundred and seventy eight million dollars for lawyers and consultants to take the city through bankruptcy, a price that bankruptcy judge Stephen Rhodes okayed. 
we're told that things are going to be better in Detroit now because you went through bankruptcy. I'm pretty sure that you're like me, somebody <clears throat> who is opposed to the city going through bankruptcy. But I want to know what, and I know this might be hard for you to answer, but what is the good that you can see that can come out of bankruptcy? But what I also want to know the bad. Well, I would say over the last 30 years, and not just as a result of the bankruptcy, all of the money uh, has gone to downtown, to fixing up downtown. So downtown is fixed up. Uh, it's, it has, uh, you know, nice restaurants, nice bars, etc. But, uh, and, and the attitude of, you know, Detroit's coming back is based on the trickle-down theory, that the gentrification that occurs in the downtown area, which actually displaced a lot of uh, senior s- citizens uh, in, in, the, in, in the apartments, uh, uh, to, to develop, you know, uh, people who are maybe uh, working downtown, uh, the younger population, um, in in some of the the fancy uh, rehabbed uh, apartments. So there, it has it has changed the face of the downtown area, and they've built this lovely river walk along the river. Well, that's very nice, but it doesn't solve the problems, the structural problems that we face in Detroit, which are jobs, schools, neighborhoods. Uh, and um, and it, there is no trickle-down theory because the neighborhoods are never going to get what the downtown got. Uh, people do not decide where they're going to live based based on the fact that there's going to be a brand-new hockey stadium downtown or that there's a, a, a nice football field or Comerica Park, the baseball stadium, is downtown. They decide where to live based on what's happening in the neighborhood. Is, there, is the neighborhood a place where there are parks and where you, there are decent schools, you know, where there's a life? And the life has been snuffed out of so many of the Detroit, Detroit neighborhoods. So they've built, <clears throat> essentially, they've built a tourist attraction for people who live on the outside, but they haven't built a city for people to actually move to. How much do you think higher water rates, higher property taxes, uh, and the amount of money that is generated by downtown, how much do you think that that could actually fix Detroit's economy? I don't think it can. I think it can make a nice little area uh, in the downtown air, you know, the downtown part of the city, but it can't, it does, it can't reach the neighborhoods, and in, and insofar as it reaches the neighborhoods, all it does is displace the population, uh, you know. So it it really doesn't have any beneficial effect. That's that's the problem with gentrification. Right. Exactly. Uh, how? What is the process for eviction in Detroit? Because I know that. I'm not too sure if this is still the case. I think it is. But in here in Cook County in Chicago, uh, Sheriff uh, Tom Dart said that he would no longer evict, people's, evict people from homes that had lost their homes during the foreclosure crisis. Are there still police? Is there still law enforcement forcing people from their homes? Yes. Uh, in fact, we have. I'm going to be leafleting tomorrow a neighborhood on the east side, uh, basically over by East Jefferson, uh, practically at the border of Gross Point Farms. This woman uh, has a house that's been valued at market value of $9,000. It was her mother's house. 
Uh, her mother had uh, one of these uh, uh, mortgages. Uh, um, they call it a reverse mortgage, where uh, she she gets money and she can stay in the house until she dies, and then the bank takes it over, or the bank offers it to relatives. So uh, she applied to uh, to. Uh, pay the $9,000. And Fannie Mae, which is a government agency, will not allow her to take possession of the house. So she's facing a trial next week, um, and we're leafleting tomorrow to let the neighbors know uh, about the the trial and to uh, call Fannie Mae and urge them to settle with her. So if she loses, then there'll be an eviction order issued uh, and then uh, Fannie Mae will have to uh, have to arrange to have the bailiff come, and um, and we will try to prevent that from happening. Um, so uh, it's a it's a tense situation. We have done that before, and uh, the eviction order was issued, but actually never implemented. So. Um, we're hoping that we can do such a thing again for this particular woman. You write that just as with Detroit's water crisis, no governmental body addresses underlying structural problems that Detroiters, 83% African-American and 9% Latino, face. It's unlike other U.S. cities in that poor people often own homes inherited from their families when Detroit was a thriving industrial city or purchased before the homeowner became disabled or retired on a fixed income. How much is that home ownership an obstacle to those like Mayor Dugan who want to see gentrification? Well, I think it's uh, not so much of an obstacle because they have the law on their side to uh, foreclose on these properties. There are approximately 20,000 properties that are being uh, foreclosed because of taxes, and there are approximately another 21,000 reversions, that is, properties that were auctioned off uh, in the 20. 12 to 14 period, but they didn't pay their taxes and therefore they reverted to the county. So uh, altogether, uh, the Detroit has uh, ownership of something like, you know, 150,000 uh, 150, properties, including uh, quite a few homes. So they can either bundle them and sell them to a developer, uh, which they uh they have actually even given uh, property away uh, to developers, both um, both the property for uh, uh, Hockey Town was essentially given away. I mean, they didn't even charge a dollar an acre for wow. uh, the um, building of, of Hockey Town, and it, which will be a whole little city unto itself. Um, and then on the other side of Woodward, uh, they gave over eight, uh, acres to uh, Dan Gilbert from Quicken Loans uh, to have him develop that property. So if the city controls the property, then the city can give it or sell it to whoever they want. Now, what I think we should do is demand that the land bank sell it, first of all, um, at a very reasonable price to the, uh, the person who is the homeowner. 
Yeah, and I just want to point out that you write, clearly the gentrification process of the downtown area won't expand to reach most of the city's 140 square miles. Detroit Future City, the plan that you were discussing earlier, a plan developed by various foundations, outlines the fate of neighborhoods. Some will be devoted to water catchments or tree farms, others to industry or strengthen industrial corridor that links the Midwest to Ontario, and some to working class neighborhoods. When we label this process racist, officials and developers reply that those of all colors who have the money are welcome, and so they are. So I just want to point out that uh, that the whole gentrification process is moving forward. You also write, if logic were the basis of Detroit's planning, this approach to water usage makes sense, and there is also a solution to tax evictions. After June 8th, the county formally owns the property that is to be auctioned off in the fall and could simply arrange to sell the homes back to residents for a small fee, wipe out the back debt, and release and reassess the property. That would stabilize several neighborhoods, and there would be a lot less blight to clean up. So here's a way to stabilize neighborhoods, get rid of blight, make sure that you're still, you can be collecting more on property taxes instead of collecting zero. Does any of that sound to you like the Dugan administration? I don't think so. I, I think that he's very clever. He tends to say at various public meetings what people want to hear, and he has his aides go up and talk to you and promise that he's going to, they'll get back to you. And guess what? They never do. We are speaking to, or we have been speaking to, retired auto worker Diane Feely. She has an amazing article about the Detroit foreclosure crisis at Black Agenda Report. You can find it at blackagendareport.com or you can go to our website, thisishell.com, or like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. We have links to it there as well. One last question for you, Diane, and it's what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate the response. You write how investigative reporter Kurt Guyette examined the plans for the 24,743 households that signed up last year to avoid water shutoffs. The program required paying the current bill of approximately $70 plus 10% of the overdue amount each month. Guyette termed the program, quote, a massive failure with only 300 current with their bills. As water shutoffs restart at the end of this past May, a Detroit Free Press article reported that 28,000 customers face immediate cutoffs. Add to that the approximately 14,000 households that never had their service restored in last year's shutoffs. So 42,000 homes could be without water. Last summer, there were reports of Detroiters going into abandoned homes to take water as their home, uh, the water from to their home had been shut off. The UN has declared this a violation of human rights. Diane, what has been the reaction by the Obama administration? And are we seeing the war over a human's and Americans' right to water being fought in Detroit? You know, I haven't uh, heard or seen that the Obama administration uh, said anything about this crisis. What is exciting is that a number of uh, people in a number of different cities around the country have brought water to Detroit, and uh, particularly Canada and some Indian reservations. Uh, so there, there are people who have helped, and we do have uh, water storage facilities at some churches and community centers. So there is a, a sharing uh, as we fight this uh, this water uh, problem. Uh, I would say Mayor Duggan says, well, we can't, you know, it, it, you just can't have uh, free water. Well, nobody is talking about free water, although that's a good idea further down, it seems to me. But it, 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 it 
what we are talking about is instead of letting people get into debt, is doing something to prevent that debt from happening, such as an affordability plan or something they don't really talk about, and that is jobs. If people in Detroit had jobs, it would be a very different city. Diane, it really was a pleasure. It is a pleasure speaking with you this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day in Detroit. And I don't know if uh, an article has made me as sad as that article made me. It just seems like the city is doing everything they can to put people, the residents of the city, in a catch-22 that will force them to leave. And that is just something that is uh, really disturbing and really saddening to me, being somebody who was born over at St. John's Hospital in Detroit. And uh, I, you know, I really miss the city that I grew up in. And I really, uh, really appreciate you being on the show with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks. Take care. Detroit's history is marred by racial strife from its earliest days when slavery was actually allowed to a series of race riots and finally a rebellion. The city has been a victim of hate, but also a center of self-determination. Here to give us a tour of Detroit history, Herb Boyd is author of Black Detroit, A People's History of Self-Determination. Welcome to This Is Hell, Herb. Thanks, Chuck. Welcome to hell. (laughs) Yeah, thank you very much for being on our show. Herb is a journalist, activist, teacher, and author or editor of some 23 books, including his latest, The Diary of Malcolm X, edited with Ilyasa Al-Shabazz, Malcolm X's daughter. He's a scholar for more than 40 years, and he teaches African-American history and culture at the City College of New York in Harlem. Your family migrated from Alabama to Detroit in 1943, fleeing Jim Crow laws, sharecropping, the KKK, and all the racism that permeated Southern life. But Detroit has its history of violence against African Americans dating back to riots in 1833, 1850s, 1863, 1942, the year before you arrived in Detroit, and another riot in 1943, the year you arrived. So why Detroit, if it has such a history of violent racism, why did your family come to Detroit? Well, it would be less than the violence that they incurred down in Alabama, <laughs> that's for certain. Uh I think you always have the kind of the push and pull aspects of our uh, history in this country. You have those things that lure us away and those things that that push us away. And of course, the bow weevil, the the, uh, the infertile soil, to say nothing of the menace of uh, Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan, where you know those things was pushing uh, many of these migrants and African Americans from Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and other parts of the South to the North. At the same time, you by the time you get to, you know, doing the Underground Railroad, was another one of the conduits, the passageways, the byways in which the African-American fugitive slaves and runaways, you know, got out of bondage. So all of these things are happening in the 1830s. Uh, Detroit is certainly beginning to get an influx of these migrants from the South. And obviously when they arrived there, uh, a lot of people don't realize, Chuck, that uh, slavery was in Detroit. And so so you have to have, as a result of that, you have the abolitionist movement that's created, which similar to the other kind of um, iterations of the movement across the uh, country. And out of that grows this here very, very uh, formidable African-American population in the city of Detroit. It's going to be impacted even more, you know, as you move into the dawn of the 20th century when Henry Ford, you know, makes that offer of $5 a day to work in his factory. So that's another one of the attractions, one of the lures that uh, uh, incentives to draw 
African-American city. What does, you, you mentioned how a lot of people don't realize that there was slavery in Detroit, and you also mentioned how there was slavery in New York City, and a lot of people don't realize that. What does mm-hmm. that lack of knowing about slavery taking place in Detroit and slavery taking place in New York City and very northern towns, what does that mislead us into thinking when we don't know or just, you know, that we just don't know that there was slavery in Detroit and New York City and very northern cities? Exactly. And one of the things to begin to point out, the the magnitude, the absolute uh, spread, and just how the impact, the history of that uh, particular period of the uh, American's history was on the development of the nation, uh, that it was not exclusively, you know, a Southern enterprise, that it had these here uh, particular Northern uh, points of uh, production that lent itself to the whole development of, of slave society. So what happens in Detroit, and you're absolutely right, Chuck, in terms of the, the analogous aspects with uh, New York City, that, um, in fact, there was more, at one time, there were more enslaved African-American people in New York than it was in, the Car- in, North, Car- in North Carolina, South Carolina. Wow. And so it created a situation where you had to have some resistance, you know, and and that's one of the things I focus on in the uh, in my book is to look at this whole the resolve of the people there to do away with that particular menace and and that kind of enslavement that uh, uh, occupied it's certainly the 1800s down to the 1860s down to the Civil War is very much a part of Detroit society. So I focus on the abolitionist movement quite a bit there because I see the kind of heroism, the kind of resolve that they have there to do away with it, and very successfully, too, with people like William Lambert and George D. Baptiste and, and the other abolitionists, including white abolitionists in Detroit at that time. Uh, you said that the Detroit-Alabama connection is still alive in the city mm-hmm. of Detroit. To what extent is Detroit a culturally southern city because of the Great Migration? And, does, and how much of that Black self-determination that you write about in your book comes from that Southern experience. I think quite a bit of it. When you look at certain individuals in particular, uh, beyond my family, beyond my mother, uh, but there was a whole slew of folks who uh, influx that came out of Alabama and Mississippi. It's a straight line migration. So you have that kind of geographical connection. You know, you don't have to go off to the right or off to the left. You can just go straight up. And uh, so that's what happened with people like Coleman Young's family coming out of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or Joe Lewis, you know. So you can talk about such prominent individuals as those who found a a refuge and a sanctuary in the city. Of course, the attraction for them, uh, you're talking about like World War II um, in terms of the arsenal of democracy, again, a continuation you know, what Henry Ford had offered to work in the automobile factories also persisted, you know, during World War II. Uh, the vacuum that was created with young white men in particular going off to fight in World War II, that created some job opportunities for African-Americans, particularly black women. And that's where my mother, kind of her entry into the whole uh, working industry, the so-called arsenal of democracy in Detroit. So you do have this here at the beginning of a very fertile African-American middle class as a result of having those job opportunities. 
You were quoted in the Detroit Free Press saying of the black history of Detroit and African-Americans' contributions to the city, saying this history is, quote, important at this time in the city's history because Detroit has a reputation out there following the bankruptcy. I was interviewed the other day, and the guy went straight to former Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick. That's what happens often in our culture. The negative mm-hmm. stuff gains resonance and lasts a lot longer than the positive. How does a chronicling of African-American contributions to Detroit's history fight against the negative image of Detroit and help create a positive image? Well, one of the things about this is in terms of black workers and any kind of um, uh, incident or, you know, episode that occurs in the city's history has to be kind of contextualized. You have to put it in both political and historical perspective. And, essential to the development of the city, as it would be to the whole nation, is the black workers at the point of production. And going all the way back to being, you know, cutting down the trees and making the first uh, transportation system and the highways and byways to say nothing of the steel industry and working in building stoves, you know, at one time Detroit was the number one stove maker in this country, and of course black workers were involved in that endeavor, right on down to the automobile industry, where they worked on the uh, probably the most onerous and, and, and underpaid and dangerous jobs in the factories, but nonetheless it was an improvement over what they had, had experienced in the South. So right away, the very beginning of that city's development, you have black workers at the point of production. When the union movement, you know, flared up, again, in the rank-and-file members there, African-Americans were very pivotal, you know, and uh, struggled there to, to maintain the unions, and they were union members, although it would be a slow and gradual process before they began to gain leadership uh, positions with the Horace Sheffields, the Shelton Taps, and the Buddy Battles, and what have you. Of course, Coleman Young uh, was a part of that particular uh, struggle. So right down into the World War II period, right into the 1950s and 60s, black workers are still very, very pivotal and uh, prominent in terms of the development of the city's history and its production, because the manufacturing base, although it's beginning to kind of wither away, the whole aspect of deindustrialization is setting in and depopulation, the flight, the, the 1943 race ride is, cannot be ignored in terms of understanding the accumulative effects of uh, the disasters that are going to occur economically later on by the bankruptcy of the 1990s and 2000s. You write about how uprisings took place all the way back to 1833 with the Blackburn Affair, Mm -hmm. or fugitive slaves rising up against a system that was recapturing slaves and sending them back to their masters. What do we miss in our understanding about slavery when we do not recognize these uprisings against slavery in the North prior to the Civil War, decades prior to the Civil War? Again, you can draw some, Chuck, you can draw some comparisons to New York City because they went through a similar kind of experience in terms of the the resistance to slavery. Um, in New York, for example, you had at least two major uprisings in the 18th century. Of course, you know, the, the in, increased population in New York is a little bit different from uh, Detroit. Detroit didn't have, have that kind of intense arrival of African Americans until, like, into the 1830s. And obviously, the Blackburn Affair... Uh, Lucy and uh, Ruth 
uh, Thornton Blackburn when they arrived as fugitive slaves running away from Louisville, Kentucky. And then the bounty hunters at that time, and certainly at the beginning of the 1830s, you have these bounty hunters are all over the place, and of course they're going to be legalized fully by the 1850s with the Fugitive Slave Act, which allowed them to kind of just grab people off the street, even if they had their papers indicating that they had been manumitted, emancipated, were free, in fact. You know, they just ignored that. In the same way with, we thought that uh, being in the Northwest Territory after the 1787, that there was a certain kind of uh, illegal, I mean, slavery was illegal. But, of course, we always recognize the distinction check between de jure and de facto. So, so Detroit had a large number of people who held in captivity uh, Native American people as well as African American people at that time. So that's one of, one of the things I chronicle that's missing in many of the books that we uh, look at that, that uh, depict the history of the city. They kind of kind of glance and gloss over that. But I think it's important to, to put that into context in terms of understanding the city's development and also the whole resolute, the kind of resolute position taken by African-American people to fight off these obstacles that, that uh, keep them bound and chained and constricted. Like the restricted covenants is going to be another continuing aspect of a challenge that the African-American people have to overcome. So that's the kind of the sub, subtitle of the book in terms of the people's history of self-determination starts from the very beginning in the 1830s as they fight off the chains of slavery. Yeah, let's talk about that fight for a second. You write about William Lambert, who you who, uh, mentioned earlier, who arrived in Detroit in 1838 at the age of 21. You write main pre, uh, his main preoccup- preoccupation was working as a conductor on the Underground Railroad, assuring the safety of runaway slaves during their stay in Detroit, then escorting them to freedom across the river to Canada. He was a phenomenal conductor, and while he may have exaggerated the number of fugitives he guided to Canada, the general consensus among historians is that some 40 thousand men, women, and children in flight from bondage passed through his gentle and caring hands. In your opinion, how much does that role of Detroit as what you call the terminus on the Underground Railroad impact the future of black self-determination that you see as the heart of the history of Detroit? Did being the terminus of the Underground Railroad set the stage for future Detroit political activism by African-Americans? I think one of the things about it is that Detroit had a very unique location uh, and being right across the river, you know, from uh, from Canada, because ultimately these runaways, these fugitive slaves, thinking that once they arrived in the so-called promised land in Detroit, that they were free of any being uh, captured and taken back into slavery. But that proved not to be the case. And of course, the Blackburn affair is is emblematic and exemplary of that particular kind of uh, danger that they faced. So Detroit had that location as a terminus for the Underground Railroad. Not a lot is said about that. Usually when you talk about the Underground Railroad and certainly the the heroic uh, deeds of um, Harriet Tubman, it's usually centered in the uh, Northeast Corridor or in the other parts of the uh, country, uh, in the Northeast part of the country, you know, coming up the eastern seaboard, as Frederick Douglass did and as Harriet Tubman did, out of Maryland on into Philadelphia and certainly New York and Boston. That's usually the, the main uh, 
thoroughfare, you might say, of the Underground Railroad. But it had these other, what you call, branches of it, that uh, particularly in the Midwest, and certainly Detroit being so so absolutely pivotally located, you know, right near Canada, made it very, very much a very popular, you know, point of departure. So as William Lambert and George D. Baptiste and Madison Lightfoot and later on Fanny and John Richardson, people who came in from Virginia and New Jersey, you have to understand also that all of the African Americans that arrived in Detroit they had no slavery background. So they were in a position to to be at kind of the seminal aspects of this here emerging black middle class that we'll have there that combines with these runaway fugitives. So right away you have a kind of a class amalgamation of these runaway fugitives hooked up with these here very, very visionary, you know, abolitionists like William Lambert. I missed my button again. Uh, so, Herb, mm-hmm. uh, you uh, also uh, make another, there's another comparison between, another mm-hmm. similarity between New York and Detroit. You write about the riots of 1863 that erupted for a couple of reasons. Uh, one was the new conscription act to the U.S. government that would force residents to fight in the Civil War. The other was the alleged rape of a white girl by a black man named Thomas Faulkner. Thomas was found guilty, mm-hmm. sentenced to life in prison. But as you say, that wasn't good enough for the mob outside. Detroit did not have a police force, and the German and Irish residents were angry to be forced to fight in a war that, as they saw it, was for the benefit of blacks. This led to race-based violence, uh, targeting African Americans, similar to the draft riots that did take place in New York as well, that many people know about. How should the North's role in the Civil War be seen differently because of these draft riots, these conscription riots, that were driven by mostly racism? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things about it, I think, central to that discussion is the job opportunities that were presented. Because once the conscription acts were imposed and Lincoln had made that move um, to bring, you know, the young white men in to have to fight for it, many of them were some, somewhat resistant of that because they didn't feel that they were responsible and necessary and obligated to fight in that particular struggle. But nonetheless, you know, because it was the law of the land, they were drafted into this new war and had to go and fight in the Union forces. And sometimes after leaving their jobs, because African Americans had been kind of prohibited and denied those opportunities, now they had them because there was a job opening there. They went in, they took the job. So that really disgusted a number of the uh, white workers who were left behind as well as those who had to go off and fight in the war. And it created some tension in the society in the same way the draft riots in New York City uh, between basically the African-American and the Irish community. There would be a similar kind of uprising and conflict in, in Detroit at the same time. You know, uh, young white men who were concerned about having to go off and fight in this war and, and seeing a black man come in and take their jobs. So it was a lot of hostility, a lot of intensity and ethnic rivalry then for those job opportunities between basically and essentially the African-American population and the Irish community. So you can see, again, that similarity from uh, from Detroit to New York. It may have occurred in other places, but, of course, the most dramatic and the, the largest episodes were in Detroit and New York at that time. And 
And they were very, very destructive, uh, particularly if you look at New York's situation. They're still trying to enumerate the number of people, particularly African-Americans, who were killed during that disturbance. In New York, it was less so, because you didn't have the same the sizable population. There's no comparison there. But at the same time, we had a number of uh, concerns about what was going to happen with that war and in terms of the involvement of the city. Ultimately, Detroit was one of the uh, major you know, regiments that were, were recruited and went off to fight in that war, distinguished themselves in battle. So ultimately, a lot of that uh, dissension that had existed in the community it gave way to the kind of contribution and the volunteer efforts of these uh, regiments, including black soldiers, who went down to South Carolina and won major battles there at the beginning of the Civil War. You also write about the Great Migration from 1915 to 1920 to Detroit by African Americans seeking work in factories as the nation was preparing to enter World War One. But you point out, though factories were mass-producing an array of useful products, for many black workers, they resembled the plantations, owners like the slaveholders, the supervisors like the overseers, the foremen like the drivers, and security guards like the paddy rollers or slave patrols. For them, the working conditions were a form of neo-slavery. There was still a lingering despair and unrelenting disparity between black and white income, housing, education, and decent employment. To what extent did the neo-slavery further prime African Americans for a fight for self-determination in Detroit that eventually would lead to the 1967 rebellion? Well, one of the things about that is that you know, when you're leaving off those plantations and farms in the South and you have this vision, uh, particularly the, uh, the kind of uh, exposure that they were getting not exactly accurate information about what was happening with these job possibilities, though the Chicago Defender and, and a few other African-American newspapers were largely responsible for, for promoting that idea that uh, Henry Ford had put out there for $5 a day. Uh, you can see, and I talk about it in the book, you know, some of the uh, impressions that some of the African-Americans got of that and the kind of really hopeful outlook that they had that things would be largely different when they reached these northern environments, when they reached Detroit and Chicago at that time. So when they arrived and discovered that, well, it was not all so rosy, you know, the jobs that they received were were the worst uh uh, jobs, the most dangerous jobs, the lowest paying jobs. But even so, you know, they took those jobs in the foundries and, and working in the uh, in the uh, pits and the furnaces and what have you, uh, because it was a far cry from what they had experienced in the South. And of course, it was the pay was largely different. So taking a custodial or a janitorial position there didn't bother to the, most of the workers at that point of production. They took those jobs with the hope that things are going to get better, that they'll be promoted and get the uh, uh, hikes and salaries and what have you that was being realized by the white workers in those plants. So, so in other words, what we're saying is that the more things change, the more they remain the same. So some of the kind of restrictions and the racism, the discrimination, the kind of bigotry that they encountered in the South pertained in the North as well. So you may have changed geography. But the social conditions, you know, the kind of uh, the, the, the challenges that they faced in terms of 
socioeconomic situations and cultural differences, there was no change at all there. They had to deal with racism and white supremacy wherever they went. And they were determined. They rolled their sleeves up, you know, worked in the factories, and they began to deal with the social welfare situations that existed there. And, of course, the whole the, the impetus and the seminal aspects of the National Urban League you know, develop right in the city of Detroit because you have this large truck, this large influx of African Americans. Suddenly, you're going to have to do something about housing, education, you know, health care, you know, and job opportunities. All those things have to be taken care of. So what, what they had envisioned, you know, uh, in terms of social welfare agency developed right there in Detroit with uh, kind of keynote performances from John Dancy and Forced to be Washington, who picked up on that concept that was being introduced by the sociologists and economists and what have you to deal with the improvement of these African Americans and taking care of this influx of these migrants, these blues people, as I call them, as they arrived in this city. So there you have this social welfare agency getting its start right in the city of Detroit. And we're going to see how Detroit becomes very critical in terms of the development of so many things when it comes to the socioeconomic uh, conditions in this in this country, uh, right on through the working uh, situations, right on into cultural developments as the music and the literary developments, to say nothing of the religious and educational. We are speaking with Herb Boyd. He is author of Black Detroit, A People's History of Self-Determination. You also mentioned the innovations African-American Detroiters created and how some of those innovations were taken by industrialists like Henry Ford. But the image too often is one of African-Americans as laborers more than innovators. So how much of the innovation of the auto industry and Detroit industry in general can be attributed to the efforts of African-Americans because they never are. <laughs> I think one of the things that when you're working at the port of production, you're always trying to make that job a lot easier for you. And uh, even in the beginning, when you start talking about the creativity, the, the genius of African-American workers, like an Elijah McCoy, for example, a lot of people don't realize of his connection to the city of Detroit and what he did with the whole uh, creating very innovative things to do with lubrication because the whole uh, rise of the mechanical and particularly automobile industry to transportation, the train systems in this country, you know, certain kind of lubrication was necessary, and that's where the genius of Elijah McCoy came into play. Uh, the whole expression, when people talk about the real McCoy, they don't realize they make a reference to an African-American inventor who was so absolutely... Uh, I mean, he had so many patents that it was necessary to to see him as pretty much the, the poster boy, you know, the whole invention in this country. So in the very beginning, because he was working at the point of production, he was trying to make his job a lot easier. And he made it a lot easier for a number of other workers, black and white, who were in the whole uh, industry, the mechanical, the industrial, the automobile industry in this country who could take advantage of his creativity, his ingenuity. So right there, right on down to like a Barry Gordy, for example, who worked at the point of production in the Ford Motor Company, and saw the the, the effective aspects of the assembly line. And he took that, that concept 
And he superimposed that over the whole cultural arena, particularly the recording industry, where he could begin to do the same kind of process. In other words, it was kind of a team approach. And that's essentially what happened. I worked at Dodge, Maine, and I saw exactly when you have 73 cars an hour passing passing down an assembly line, you begin to see the whole team uh, impact, how important it is, you know, to have that team there from one point of, uh, of development or creativity or manufacturing as it connects to another. Because I, was a, I worked in just about every different department they had at uh, Dodge, Maine, and I saw exactly what Barry Gordy took advantage of and said and applied that same thing in creating these record, the record company, the Motown Empire that he did. In other words, you have people who who are the uh, singers, who are the uh, who are the backup musicians, studio musicians, who are the who are the uh, arrangers, and that last, who are the distributors and promoters. So all of that was a part of the process that he recognized working at the at the uh, Ford Motor Company. He just took that assembly line concept and applied it to the uh, music industry. You mentioned how, again, when the U.S. was gearing up for war, another mass migration happened to Detroit, seeking jobs in the factories that would build all the war material necessary for war, and this is being World War II. Then in 1943, another race riot. How much is Detroit's history one of migration by African Americans, soon followed by violent race riots by whites? Well, one of the things about this is that once you have a large influx of people, I don't care who they are, even some of the European arrivals, uh, was they were met with hostility, too, because they were strangers, and they had to make the adjustments and adaptation to a new environment. And in, in, in the process of doing this, they encounter all kinds of difficulties, um, usually the kind of xenophobia that's coming from an indigenous population, you know, because these people are coming in. We don't know who they are. They bring a different kind of language and culture with them. So it creates some turmoil. And certainly with African-Americans coming in, it's compounded and exacerbated by the whole color situation, the whole racism. So what they have to do is how you begin to adjust to that situation. African-Americans, you know, met with that kind of hostility and being restricted and confined to just one part of the city, that's enough irritation and aggravation right there that you cannot exercise the kind of promise of mobility. Because when you left, you know, those plantations and farms of the South, you you left with the hope and the promise that you would have uh, a different kind of uh, environment and possibilities and the mobility and then you run into the same old restriction. And so that can be very, very disgusting. And, and, and they were outraged by that. And something had to be done. And, of course, when you have a simmering discord in, in your population, all you need then, Chuck, is just one little spark and boom, whether it's true or false. And certainly the rumors of 1943, they were not accurate, accurate at all, you know, in terms of what had happened. It uh, triggered the whole incident that led to you know, a large number of people being killed, property damage, and put the city in a situation where they had to recover. It was already, we had enough problems going on already in the city, and suddenly all of that then is just, just increased the intensity 
the the, the uh, difficulties we have in terms of social management and, and working harmoniously together, all that's just like uh, thrown into a whole nother realm of challenge and how we're going to have to pull this society together. So it takes years. After you have a disturbance like that, 1943, where cities and stores, I mean, the whole streets and, 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 and businesses are just ripped apart, and folks are just giving us here this new hatred of each other. You know, it takes years to kind of mollify that, to kind of improve the situation and get back on track to where you thought you were going in the first place, where it was going to be, you know, a kind of collective and cooperative development in the city, you know, did not take place. So you have an accumulative effect then, whereas a number of years to try to get to do away with the kind of uh, terrible hostility and and, and 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 trepidation of the past. So that's what that's that's hampered Detroit's development over the years. And then when you come to 1967, you have a repeat of that. Not to say that anything was uh, that different for, for a whole generation from the 1930s you know, to the 1960s, because one of the things that was consistently a part of the kind of difficulties we had in the city was the uh, police and the community relations. And there's always going to be a problem when you have, uh, ostensibly, you have like a white police force and an African-American population, which they're kind of like uh, disposed to, to kind of control. So it's a whole control thing, and that's one of the things I made the, anal- the analogy between, you know, the plantation and the neo-slavery thing is because the police force then that was uh, part of like the patty rollers in the South, they had that responsibility, you know, to kind of limit, you know, the uh, the mobility of the African-American population, particularly runaway slaves and everything. So, this, so the police force in the city, uh, many of them, the police officers had come from the South, you know, with the whole understanding that they had an experience of dealing with African-American people. So they could apply the same kind of very brutal relationship that pertained in the uh, South. You could kind of kind of make it operate in the city of Detroit and other cities in the North, too. So that's, uh, that's what I was talking about in terms of the continuation as uh, Miri Baraka talked about the unchanging same. So let's move to the 1950s. You write when the Dyes Committee, a.k.a. the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, set up shop in Detroit in 1951. Many black activists scurried for cover, but not Coleman Young. His courage was never more evident than in his refusal to hand over the membership lists of the local chapter of the National Negro Congress, an organization that the House Un-American Activities Committee had uh, defined as subversive. And earlier in your book, you write about the role of uh, the Communist Party in helping African-Americans fight eviction during the Depression. But when the Red Scare is depicted, the story usually focuses on whites, of course. So how targeted were black activists in Detroit by McCarthy? How much did Joe McCarthy see Detroit as a hotbed of communism? Well, one of the things about this is that, and of course, you you cannot separate the uh, labor movement the union activity that sprung up as a result of the whole rise of the automobile industry in the city. Uh, they're kind of like twin components. You know, they, they dovetail in, in very critical ways because at the same point, at, at the same time, do you have this year kind of 
you know, real inspiration and and this uh, hope and optimism, you, the job opportunities of the automobile industry, you know, concomitant with that is the rise of the union movement uh, because, you know, we, the health and welfare of these workers, they have to be given certain kind of guarantees of security, you know, working in these plants, protective aspects, uh, say nothing about uh, re- union representation. So all of this here, the rise of the union movement, is right there, is inseparably connected with the the growth of the automobile industry, in particular with the UAW, the United Automobile Workers. So those two, those those, those kind of conversion of those two things are important in terms of understanding that growing out of the labor movement, and of course, uh, workers in this society going all the way back to the IWW or the United Mine Workers and what have you, the Knights of Labor, we've always had some organized element of of the workers in the society. And obviously, when you have that, African-American workers, maybe not in a large way, but certainly they are. They are represented there. They have even with the IWW, you had a few African-American workers who were part of that particular development. So when you add to that, you know, the whole theory that's coming from, you know, Henry Harry Bennett and his goon squad is working for Henry Ford at that time to kind of defeat the rise of the union movement. And then we're going to see that African-Americans, and particularly the more militant radicals, the ones who are on the left and connected with uh, socialist and communist organizations, they're also connected with the, the labor movement. And and they continue that same kind of enterprise and struggle long after they leave and no longer affiliated with the union movement. Uh, so they take that same kind of attitude into what you call political formations in the city. And we're going to see a more dramatic aspect of that as you move into the 1960s, and certainly with the the rebellion of 1967, and and associated with that, and uh, you're looking at the uh, situation with with the tribunal that grows out of the uh, the Algiers Motel incident, in which uh, three young black men are killed by the police officers there, and we recognize the community recognized that those police officers were not going to be uh, going to be uh, punished. They would not be uh, sentenced or found guilty. So the community took it upon themselves, you know, say, we'll have our own system of justice here, and we'll try these police officers. So that's when the whole People's Tribunal uh, came into effect. It was a continuation shift in terms of the organized elements of the community. And we're going to see a more um, concrete uh, uh, example of that Shortly thereafter, almost within months, you know, the People's Tribunal, you have the rise of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers that grows out of a number of revolutionary union movements, including the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, to a drum at that time, to say nothing of uh, the Republic of New Africa, the Shrine of the Black Madonna, and even a rejuvenated Nation of Islam. Of course, Malcolm X had given the prominence for that in the community out of Elijah Muhammad, who arrived in Detroit uh, to work for the Ford Motor Company in the 1920s. So all of this is a part of the political firmament, you know, that grows out of the kind of general disgust and, and outrage coming from a black community that felt like absolutely brutalized and oppressed 
by suppression of the police force in the city. So that's an a ongoing situation right on down into the 1990s, you know, with uh, Ayanna Jones and, and Malice Green with the police force. And, of course, stress that grows out of the, in the 90, early 1970s, and we cannot ignore that as a part of the ongoing struggle between uh, the black community and the police uh, force. Why is it so important to see 1967 as a rebellion and not a riot? What does the word riot do to what happened in 1967 that rebellion is a far better definition? I think one of the things, and it's an ongoing in terms of the terminology and the nomenclature and trying to name and put a claim on something, and I think it largely has to do with uh, one's political perspective at the time, whether you're looking at it from the standpoint of you know, one of the militant radical members of our community. We saw it as an uprising. We saw it as a rebellion because 1943, there was never any argument about whether it was a riot or a rebellion because uh, almost uh, uh, inseparably, inextricably linked with riot is usually race. You say a race riot. You don't say a race rebellion. You say a race riot because that was like a hostility between two uh, two parts of, of the community, the white community, black community. And they went after each other savagely in 1943. There's all kind of evidence of that. We didn't see any elements of that uh, during the 1967 uprising. There was no, very little that I can recognize between the black and the white community at that time, and I was very much in the center of a lot of the activity at that time. It was mostly people who, both black and white, who took advantage of of all of the uh, the turmoil to begin to to move against the state and move against property. It was an attack on property more than anything, and more than an attack on individuals. So I guess in terms of the political aspects of it, it was, uh, from our perspective, more of an outrage against the system. It was against the, the, the people who managed the society, that they, who controlled the police, and was less to do with you know, attacking any particular ethnic group or, or element or race in the community. So there's a distinction right there, you know, because a riot, race riot, boom, 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 we knew exactly, exactly what that was all about as opposed to a rebellion where you have a people who are outraged against the system, against the, uh, those powers that be or, or the folks who control you know, the whole society and the police force. So that's essentially the distinction that many of us raised about the rebellion and, and as opposed to calling it a riot. You write that the struggle for self-determination was tempered by the race riots in 1863 and 1943 and created in the rebellion in 1967 and the early 1970s when the vicious arm of the police force through the Stop the Robberies and Enjoy Safe Streets or Stress program sought to impose its will on young black men in particular. That fight-back spirit once again surfaced and halted a burgeoning retrenchment. Now, Stress was accused of killing at least 22 people and arresting hundreds without cause. In fact, there's a new documentary, Detroit Under Stress, produced by the son of an ex-cop, and it will be shown Saturday, October 14th at the Royal Star Film Festival in downtown 
Royal Oak, just outside of Detroit. And you write that by 1971, whatever the revolutionary content of the Motown sound, it meant little to the machinations of the Detroit Police Department. There was a foreboding uptick in police violence with the creation of the secret unit in the city's police department, the uh, dreaded death squad stress, an acronym for, as I was mentioning earlier, stop the robberies and enjoy safe streets. This undercover decoy squad was fully mobilized and operating with alarming and frightening effect. Each evening extended the pattern of even ever more violence, ever more disturbing assaults on the black community, particularly its young men. So how much then, even though there was the Kerner Commission to look into the problems that uh, led mm-hmm. to the, uh, the rebellions in Newark and in Detroit, how much was that, how much were those potential reforms ignored and how much in reaction to a rebellion against police violence did Detroit police systemically become more violent? So one of the things about, I think, the 67 Rebellion kind of put the the law enforcement agencies on notice that uh, something else had to be done in terms of uh, the the impact in improving the whole expression, you know, of of, uh, suppression of the African-American community. Uh, Because, you know, it was like, you know, one of the things about the 67 Rebellion, it intensified the um, the police force in the city of Detroit. Um, they recognized, because they had to bring in, you have to understand, out of the rebellion, they had to bring in all of this kind of military support. I mean, the National Guard, and then at last, you know, the, the 101st Airborne. I mean, we got troops coming in. I mean, coming like an occupied city. Uh, and so one of the things I think the uh, law enforcement agency and those who the commission, the police commissioner, particularly John Nichols at that time, they began to recognize that something had to be done to fortify and then improve you know, the, the kind of control that the uh, police had. So that's when stress, you know, was created because that comes to the 19, early 70s, you know, so that's only four or five years. Uh, even less than that, after the rebellion. So we see that as a consequence. So in the same way that we began to, in the community, people in, in organizations in the community began to organize themselves, the police was doing that at the same time. So you have these kind of, again, these kind of dual developments. You know, the police are getting stronger and creating death squads and everything in order to 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 improve their control and to make sure that so-called, you know, stop the crimes and, you know, tamp down the drug wars and stuff like that, all of that was part and parcel, you know, of a reaction to the 67 Rebellion. In the same way, the, the, the African-American community began to organize itself with all these other political formations that I, that I talked about earlier. All of those came as a result of the people organizing itself. So we have these kinds of ongoing developments there, you know, that really never quiets. I mean, it's always something that's kind of a simmering, you know, discord there, the jangling discords, as Dr. King talked about it. Those things continue, you know, right into the 1980s and into the 1990s, and we have different, you know, incidents that kind of jump up there, and any one of them could have ignited another rebellion or another riot in the city. Fortunately, it did not occur because you had, you know, you didn't have that kind of critical mass that was going on at that time that people recognized that, oh, 
Well, we did terrible damage to the city in 1943. We did a terrible damage to the city in 1967. So those are kind of recent memories for a lot of people who say, oh, the destructive aspects of that. Well, we end up hurting ourselves more than anyone else. And I think it was a certain kind of reluctance on the part of people who may have taken to the streets at that time to find some different kind of ways to vent their outrage, you know, to let that unrest, you know, maybe develop in the political arena. I think that's one of the reasons that early on, at the, at the, in the wake of the 1943 riot, that you could have like a Kavanaugh, a Jerome Kavanaugh coming in and winning the election after two administrations of absolute hostility to Detroit community, community uh, Louis Mariani and Albert Cobo, that you could have this kind of neoliberal ariser there and be, and become the mayor for two terms in the city of Detroit because they recognize that maybe let's try something different here in terms of the electoral process. Absolutely given an opportunity to do that because, you know, we still had uh, voter suppression that was going on at that time where African-American people could not fully participate in the electoral arena, even having their candidates. It took a long time just to get an African-American on the council, in the city council in the city of Detroit. And certainly with Coleman Young coming in, because he came, he ran on a ticket to eliminate stress, you know, to curtail the kind of abusive behavior coming from Detroit police. And that's how he won that election and stayed in office for 20 years. So that's a very dramatic breakthrough in terms of beginning to apply the electoral process as opposed to the kind of like these urban upheavals. I want to make sure all of our listeners know that your book goes all the way up to this very day in Detroit. You even write about the recent bankruptcy, but we're up against the clock, so we have to leave it there in kind of like mm-hmm. the 1990s. We've been speaking with Herb Boyd. He is author of Black Detroit, A People's History of Self-Determination. Herb, our final question for all of our guests sure. is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You write, let us hope that new enterprises like Shino Shake Shack and Bedrock and efforts by Mayor Mike Duggan and the uh, uh, Detroit Economic Growth Corporation to stimulate jobs have a far-reaching impact for those suffering from low or no employment. These new ventures and businesses, although not owned by black Detroiters, are nonetheless providing minimum wage opportunities. These workers, whether employed at the concession stands, at parking lot attendants, valets, security guards at stadiums, exemplify a long tradition of service, a vigorous working class pulse that built the backbone of Detroit and for many decades kept many industries thriving. While I certainly hope for a growth in jobs and wages mm-hmm. in Detroit, especially for city residents, how unequal is Detroit's latest revival? I think one of the things about it is it has to be you know, a little bit more comprehensive and reach larger segments of the population there. If you're going to have the kind of collective growth, obviously downtown Detroit is uh, showing uh, is thriving more or less, and midtown Detroit has reached all the way up to midtown. You've got a queue line that runs from downtown to uh, to midtown Detroit. But it has to go beyond that. But this is the kind of baby steps that you have to take in order to be, before you take the giant steps in terms of uh, overall growth and development in the city. Because you talk about 139 square miles, but uh, just a small part of it 
has realized this here rejuvenation. So it has to reach out to the suburbs. It has to reach out to the to the other regions of the city where you can see all kind of devastation. You can see where the land is lying fallow, where there's a dilapidated housing, where they have the the whole carrying down the kind of uh, the, the the destruction of these these dilapidated houses and everything. What does that mean, you know, for people in terms? Uh, who had faced foreclosures before, because that gentrification is certainly a part of this you know, whole equation. But I, I'm hopeful, because I do see, as I suggest in the book, you know, these sprigs, you know, of, of uh, growth and development with the urban farms, you know. If you're saying downtown with Dan Gilbert and the whole uh, occupation and renovation of the buildings down there, that has to spread all the way out. You know, I think we have a mayor in there there's some vision in terms of making those connections to make sure that, you know, it's kind of an overall development and not just pockets of development in the city. I think that's the hope that I have, and that's what I see developing. Herb, it has been an honor and a pleasure having you on our show. Thank you so much for being on the air with us today. Oh, Herb Boyd you, is author of visit hell. <laughs> Herb Boyd is author of Black Detroit: <laughs> A People's History of Self Determination. Take care, my friend. I really appreciate you being on Thank the show. You, and when this book comes out in uh, paperback, I want to have you back on. All right, there he goes. Capitalism has left Detroit behind, but Detroiters have reacted and they are working in an informal capitalism. Here to tell us how capitalism works outside of the market in Detroit, award-winning freelance journalist Valerie Van Pan wrote the In These Times article, Detroit's Underground Economy, Where Capitalism Fails, Alternatives Take Root. Over decades of poverty, Detroiters have fostered a resilient, informal economy based on trust. Welcome to This Is Hell, Valerie. Thanks for having me on. Valerie is the former editor-in-chief of Detroit's Alt-Weekly, the Metro Times, and has covered Detroit's alternative economies for Bloomberg. So uh, you write that uh, you might have heard about the Detroit comeback. It's a popular narrative in media uh, silos these days, a tale of investment and revitalization. Young people look romantically to the city as a blank canvas. Uh, Property is cheap, they gush, and the city is coming back. The problem is... This comeback is a myth. I have talked to people who live in Manhattan and uh, other areas or right within New York City who live in very expensive housing right now. And they've always and I've had many people tell me that, hey, if it doesn't work out in New York, I always think of Detroit. You'll love this. I was born in Detroit and uh, raised in East Detroit. Uh, I always think of Detroit as my lifeboat city, the city that I'm going to go to when things don't work out for me in Manhattan. We'll get to why you see this as a myth in a second. But first, why do you think this myth, this time, is persisting so much? Why? Because we've heard these comeback stories of Detroit in the past, and they've never come true. That's why we had to have a comeback story this time. So why do you think this time this myth is persisting so much? Well, I think part of it is the media. Um, we certainly like to uh, champion the underdog. And Detroit, of course, is the, perhaps the ultimate city underdog in the United States. And I think it's very validating to tell the story uh, of a comeback that, you know, it is romantic. And, oh, there's coffee shops and, oh, there's um, new businesses sprouting up everywhere. And you can buy a house for $500 and, um, 
it's, it's, it's romantic and people like that and people want to be a part of something I think bigger than themselves. And they see Detroit as an easy opportunity to do that. And they believe that there's a freedom um, that Detroit will give them in that regard. So is it, uh, is it the media saying, Hey, look, everybody, capitalism works. Isn't this awesome? Um, possibly part of it, uh, I think is definitely that. I think it's also very fueled by white media particularly Caucasian, Anglo-Saxon um, white people. Uh, I remember when I was at Metro Times, the New York Times did a, this piece about how wonderful Corktown was and um, how wonderful Detroit was and how Detroit was coming back. And they had all these businesses profiled and all these um, pictures to illustrate the story. And every single person they talked to and every single photograph they ran was of a white person. And, you know, Detroit is still over 80% African-American. Um, so I think um, it's a narrative that's being perpetuated by white people and that um, the African-American experience is completely um, rejected and denied in uh, in that narrative. So how much do you think, when it comes to the media, how much do you think a city's comeback is based on if it's comeback for white people? <laughs> well, that's even um, that's another thing, too. You know, is it really a comeback for white people? Um, I think... You know, businesses open and close in Detroit all the time, as they do everywhere in the United States. Um, but I, I have yet to see some place that has opened, you know, as, as part of the comeback, and um, it is really, really sustainable in the long haul. I, um, I had a friend who used to say, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And if you look at the economy over the last ten years, you know, overall, I think there's this general sense that the economy is getting better and and there's optimism. Um, so I think that helps, you know, foster this this condition in Detroit where, you know, people are doing things and opening bars and opening cafes. But, you know, it takes a lot more to make a sustainable society than coffee shops and bars. You write that the Detroit comeback is a myth. The po- quote, the poverty rate is nearly 40 percent. And despite the influx of young whites lured by promises of a Detroit renaissance, the population continues to decline from a peak of 1.8 million in 1950 to 670,000 today. Approximately 70,000 households have had their water turned off for lack of payment since 2014. And about 17,000 occupied homes are at risk of foreclosure this year. So is Detroit still shrinking while uh, the rich part of Detroit is still growing? I, it, absolutely. Um, the, the latest census numbers did just come out um, just as I was working on this story, and it showed that Detroit's population had declined yet again. Um, I, I think if you talk to somebody in the city, the city will out, oh, but the population decline is slowing down. <laughs> but it, it, it's still been in decline. Uh, for decades at this point. And I think what you're seeing is, you know, parts of this, this Detroit is mammoth. It's 139 square miles. It's very, you know, and there's no uh, functional public transit. So you have these pockets of area for development. I think downtown is the perfect example where you have um, sports arenas and you have, you know, a man named Dan Gilbert who owns Quicken Loans, um, really fueling this perception of a revitalization. And he is pouring in money to create that. But Detroit is so much bigger than that small, you know, seven square mile area from Wayne State University down to the river. Um, it, it's 
so much bigger and and it's hard to I think get your head around and and if you just parachuted into Detroit and all you saw was downtown Detroit you would probably think gosh this is great Detroit really is coming back um but it it betrays the reality of you know uh, disenfranchised neighborhoods neighborhoods that still lack um, consistent access to city services um and neighborhoods that are still seeing um uh, still seeing a plethora of problems you're right that over the over decades of uh, poverty, Detroiters have learned to get by without access to traditional cash or credit. And I've always wondered this, you know, how are people in the inner city of Detroit, how are people within the borders of Detroit actually surviving when so many social services are gone? I mean, people don't understand that. Uh, I think I don't even know if they're, they're doing it yet. For over 30 years, 40 years, uh, Detroit wasn't clearing streets when the snow came down. Uh, street lights weren't working. Uh, everybody knows about the problems with uh, their water system. You write that there's a resilient, informal economy rooted in neighborhoods and communities. Barter, gifts, time trading, and underground businesses are ubiquitous. Now, we've talked to people who capitalism has left behind recently, including Tasso Sagres, who works with an anarchist organization in Athens that is providing public services for citizens who can no no longer get those services from the government due to austerity. And Detroit has definitely been facing austerity over the last 40 years, even if they don't even know it was called austerity. When it comes to how this informal economy works in Detroit, how much is it and how much isn't it capitalism? You know, I think a lot of it is um, people don't think of it as an ism. People are thinking of it as just like, what do I have to do to survive? What do I have to do to get my car fixed? What 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 do I have to do to um, to make sure my water stays on, to make sure my electricity stays on, to make sure my property tax gets paid? You know, um, if, you know, you can grow your own food, you can trade for food, you can do a lot of th- a lot of trade, which is what's happening. And I would uh, call that kind of trade capitalism. I think that that's. Um, out of necessity and lack of access to capitalism, trade is just is, is very common. Gifting is very common, um, especially in communities where you know people and where you know that they'll be around for a long period of time and where you know that, you know, if they need help now, you have something you can give them, you give it to them. Down the line, you are probably, you're going to need something too, and they'll be able to support you in that time of need as well. That's what community is really all about. It's how humanity functioned for thousands of years. Uh, you know, I think before mercantilism and capitalism came in and, you know, when you have lack access to cash, so you can't just, or credit and you can't just go to the uh, mechanic and pay to have your car fixed. It, it creates a circumstance where you have to seek alternative ways to get your car fixed because you have no public transit and, and you have to get, you know, maybe drive 20 miles to see a doctor or to get your child to the doctor. And, um, and, and so it, it creates these very creative, very, uh, it, it's like a web. It's a social support net that keeps, that has kept Detroit going through, at this point, multiple generations of poverty, multiple generations of unemployment. Uh, I know that the formal number is like 39.8% um, are in poverty, but I would argue that number is probably much higher because you have so many people who are disenfranchised uh, and and uncounted, I think. Um, the circumstance leads to people seeking 
alternative solutions. And then when you have somebody like Bustos, who I write about in the story, he is a young man who fell off a ladder, couldn't walk for months, still had to make his property tax payment, his house payment. You know, what's he going to do? He has no resources. Um, he start, you know, he, but he knew how to cook. So he started cooking out of his own kitchen and selling that food. This is unlicensed. It's not sanctioned. It's it's underground. You have to know him to be able to access that restaurant, but he's got tables in his living room and people go there to eat. And he was able to make enough money to, to pay, you know, his property tax and his mortgage. Because unfortunately, um, for as, as helpful as trade and, and gift economy is, there are some things that at this point you can't, um, you still have to pay cash for. Um, so his solution was to to sell food. At the same time, if there's somebody in the community who is hungry um, and doesn't have anything and doesn't have any money, he will feed them. And then that's not like a soup kitchen. That's, you know, helping somebody who he knows who's in their time of need and who will at some point down the line probably give him a hand up when he needs it. How much is this kind of survival through informal markets? How much is this illegal or being criminalized? Is it increasingly being decriminalized or criminalized? Because I know that if this kind of thing happened here in Chicago, because we've seen it in the past, whether it's the elote salesman from his cart on the corner or if it's an ice cream truck or whatever the situation is, uh, food trucks. Uh, Mayor Emanuel has said that any kind of uh, informal food sales is dangerous because we need to have oversight to make sure that the food is healthy, which leads to a whole bunch of permitting and licensing, and it prices a lot of people out of that market. So how much of this kind of survival through informal markets that's taking place in Detroit, how much is this being criminalized? Well, I think the key here is that, um, you you know, you have to, you have to know him. You have to know where he lives. You have to, (laughs) you have to be, have access to him. It's not like in, um, in some places where they do have, you know, illegal street food carts on the street. Um, I I don't see as much of that happening. I think most of the street food carts I'm familiar with in Detroit anyway, and, and, and there could be something else going on that I'm not aware of, but the street food carts that I know of in Detroit, they are licensed, they are permitted. Um, the restaurant, the formal restaurants are licensed, they are permitted. Um, but for, there's this other network, you know, of people working out of their homes that keeps the community going. And it's not just, re- you know, a restaurant in, in a home. And that's a very common thing. It's also you know, beauty parlors and uh, auto mechanics and other kinds of services that you would typically go to a more established licensed official place to have your services completed. Um, but it, instead, it's it's happening in people's garages and basements and living rooms, and there's no sign out front. So, you know, even if the city decided, oh, we want to crack down, you know, what, what house are you going to go to? Right. Uh, you also point out in your, when you're talking about Luis Bustos and how desperate he is, uh, how desperate his situation is, how he can't work after he falls off of a ladder doing some roofing. But you also point out that uh, he has it then has troubles paying for his car insurance. And you're right, Detroit's auto insurance rate is the nation's highest. And that's, whenever I tell somebody that, they're always amazed that Detroit would have the highest car insurance rates. How aware is the public, in your opinion? of the high cost of being poor? Do people understand how high the cost of living in a city like Detroit is, despite how impoverished it is? 
I, I don't think they have any idea. And and to give you an example, you know, I lived in Detroit. Um, my rent was cheap, and uh, I, had a, I had a lovely home. And I moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is very expensive. And my monthly expenses are about the same, but my quality of life in Cambridge. You know, I live near Harvard, and I'm on a tree-lined street. My water is clean. Uh, my monthly expenses are about the same. Um, it, it is so costly to live in Detroit. You need to have a car. Uh, people don't understand about auto insurance. Um, uh, Detroiters, of course, they understand how expensive it is. Um, in fact, I talked to one one gentleman just the other day. Um, he's in his mid-30s, and he's only recently started buying car insurance. He's been driving without car insurance for years, well into his adulthood, simply because he wasn't able to afford uh, afford to purchase it. So he's very proud of himself. You know, now he, he, he feels all official because he was able to buy it. But um, I, I don't see how that's conducive to public health when you're in a situation where, where you have something that's required and people can't afford it well into adulthood. You write that Detroit's economy has failed spectacularly. It is no surprise then that barter, gift, trade, and underground businesses have become an essential as have become as essential as cash and credit are elsewhere. Without formal record keeping or ways of tracking private exchanges, it is difficult to measure just how prevalent the survival economy has become. But by all accounts, it's pervasive. Do you know if there is any? redevelopment strategy that the city might be embracing right now of pressuring this kind of economy to go away? Is killing the informal economy increasingly being seen as a way to clean up the city? Not that I'm aware of. Of course, I haven't spoken with anybody in the city after this article came out, but the city is just so strapped for resources. Um, It would be uh, really sad if they decided to use their resources to uh, crack down on the poor people who live in Detroit's neighborhoods. Um, I think a lot of people on the coast, who when they look at Detroit romantically, they see they see opportunity. And of course, there are you know there are business incubators and there's you know help for people to start their small businesses in Detroit. But so much of that is going to people from outside of Detroit to come in and start their business there. You know the people like Bustos who live in the neighborhoods. Um, for whatever reason, whether it's lack of access to transportation, lack of access to um, capital, to information, uh, lack of education, there's such a growth imbalance there um, that that these communities uh, really have kept each other going and and have created these networks for survival and and, and to flourish in whatever way that they can. and I think the city of Detroit is aware that this has been happening. I can't imagine that people who work in the city don't have family members that are participating in these economies themselves or, you know, participating in these economies on their own time. Um, so I don't see them cracking down at this moment. It doesn't mean they won't. But uh, I don't know that it would be a wise thing to do. I think, if anything, the questions need to be asked, you know, how do we incorporate this more into um, in, into our society? How do we make it easier for people to have access to capital or have access to business incubators or have access to um, alternative ways and resources to pay their property tax, to get their water, to get their electricity? 
I think those are the kinds of questions that need to be asked. When you have a population as impoverished as Detroit is, um, the question shouldn't be how do we get them to pay more money. The question should be how you know can we provide these services to these people in a way that you know is for the public health and for the public good for the children for the elderly for the disabled. Um, nobody, I think, should be put in a position where um, they're disabled and they're at risk of losing their home because they're disabled and there's absolutely no safety net there for them. You talk about time banking, and I kind of want to compare and contrast that with the sharing economy because it's kind of, you write that one of the biggest challenges to time banking, this is where people provide a service, like let's say you sew some clothes and you put some hours into that, and then you trade that service for somebody else doing a service, like maybe mowing your lawn or fixing your car or whatever. You are exchanging time in a time bank. You write that one of the biggest challenges to time banking, which is primarily facilitated online, is the digital divide. But Detroiters have found creative ways around that in other sectors of the informal economy, managing to set up ride shares, for instance, without an app. Niasia uh, Valdez, 22, received her driver's license in 2015 and began sharing her car with neighbors and coworkers. Together, they formed their own ride-share network, giving rides, asking one another for a lift, sharing cars and keys. Valdez says their circumstances fosters trust. There's an understanding, she says, when I'm struggling too, we can help each other. So this is the kind of time-banking ride-sharing that's happening within the 80% of Detroit that has been left behind by capitalism. And then I bet within the other 20%, within the seven square miles that go from Wayne State to the river, I bet that within there, that area, there's also a sharing economy, but that one is using the apps of Uber and Lyft. What does that reveal to you about the divide that's happening within Detroit today? Well, I think you just described the divide. <laughs> that, that is the divide. It, 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 that is the divide. But people are going to continue to find solutions regardless of their circumstance. You know, people will prevail. I'm sorry, I missed my button. You write that throughout much of the city, there's an understanding that with no jobs to be had, fellow community members are struggling too. It's a necessity then to engage in a currency of community. Now, while it is encouraging that people find a way in the most challenging uh, circumstances, people shouldn't be facing those most challenging circumstances in the first place. So how much does even Luis Bustos's story of opening up his restaurant inside of his home and the way in which he works with an informal economy, how much does that reveal the problems of poverty and how much do they distract us from the problems of poverty? As you, as you write in your article, how much do we risk fetishizing this kind of informal economy and ignoring the shortcomings of capitalism? Yeah, I always think that's, that's the danger. It's very easy to romanticize, you know, oh, there's a community and oh, people share their cars and oh, you can rely on your neighbors. I mean, that's, that's a fantasy for people who come from upper socioeconomic um, places. Um, and it's something that they're uncomfortable with, that they don't have experience with. And, and, and so it's easy to romanticize. It's why people pay thousands of dollars to go to Burning Man every year and not spend a dime. Um, they, they create these like artificial places where they can go and have community um, rather than cultivate the community in their own lives. Um, and then in my, in my mind, when you look at a circumstance like what's happening in the impoverished parts of Detroit, um, 
It's unconscionable to me that 70,000 households have had their water shut off. That's unconscionable. It's, and frankly, I don't think that circumstance would happen in a place like Boston, which has a similar sized population. Um, I think there would be massive outrage. There would be, it would be front page news every single day until a solution was solved. City leaders would come together. It, it's, it would just be handled so much differently. And the blame would not be put on the, po- the, the poor, I don't think. I mean, not that, you know, capitalism has its problems. Higher socioeconomic classes have their problems. But Detroit is so unique in that not only is there the situation where tens of thousands of households have their water turned off, but the general powers that be are okay with that. There isn't a, a massive, massive movement. In, in Detroit to stop that from happening or to change how the water department works or to change how the fees are incurred. Um, you know, Flint water, the Flint, which is just about an hour North of Detroit, they still don't have clean water and they disconnected from Detroit's water because the rates were too high for them to pay. They couldn't afford it. Um, so until, you know, people really start looking at these systems, and what they're really doing to people and accepting it and, and like, like saying, okay, this is really what's happening. This is unacceptable. How do we change it? Um, you know, we're going to see this kind of thing continue to happen and unfortunately spread. It's spreading. It's not, it's not stopping. Um, I don't know. A lot of times people ask me what the solution is. I don't know what the solution is. I don't have a I don't have a magic wand. I don't have a, a succinct answer. What, but I think people need to come together to find the solutions together, and everybody needs to care about their community. And in Detroit, that means the very wealthy need to care about the most impoverished and the most vulnerable of the society as well. Um, instead, uh, I think the attitude there, and I've heard people say this. I've seen people write this. You know, if people want fresh water, they can do- go down to the river with a bucket and collect it themselves. And that's not, um, in my mind, a civilized society, and certainly a first world nation should not have um, that be the answer. Valerie, I've got one last question for you, uh, and I just want to tell our listeners that this article is really fascinating from In These Times, Detroit, Detroit's underground economy. And there are a couple of things that we didn't get a chance to talk about. Uh, people should look up the organization Detroit's Detroiters Helping Each Other, which is an amazing organization that essentially takes uh, what were abandoned storefronts and they put turn them into kind of like a goodwill or a salvation army, but everything there is free despite there not being any electricity. And it's not like there's rioting and looting happening. People work very well together at Detroit's Helping Each Other. So you should find out about that organization. And also, one of the things that uh, your writing made me do was think about the ways in which I interact with informal economies on a regular basis. And I think that if people just paid attention a little bit more, maybe people who are wealthier than I don't act or don't uh, rely or uh, work within informal economies as much as I do. But uh, it just uh, raised my awareness and it made me think, when am I working within an informal economy? When am I not? And uh, it's just, it's a very fascinating article. And I'm I'm really glad that we had an opportunity to have you on the show. I've got one last question for you. We have been speaking with award-winning freelance journalist Valerie Van de Pan. She wrote the In These Times article, Detroit's Underground Economy. You can follow her on Twitter at Ask the Duchess.
Ask the Duchess. Find out more at her website, ValerieVandepan.com. That's Valerie, V-A-N-D-E-P-A-N-N-E. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. The problem with Detroit in the past was it was a one-industry town, but luckily there were three companies the big three. It was an auto industry town, but at least we had Chrysler, GM, and Ford. Now it's one industry uh, town again, but there's only one business, and that's Quicken Loans. What happens when Quicken Loans and Dan Gilbert leave Detroit? (laughs) Oh, I think um, Dan Gilbert would say, I'm not planning to leave Detroit. I, and unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, if if Quicken were to leave Detroit, I think that the um, the illusion and the comeback narrative would again uh, no longer be a myth. It would, you know, be another failure. And uh, but I think the people in the neighborhood um, would be just fine. They were fine before Quicken, and they're going to be fine after. <laughs> Valerie, I really appreciate you being on this week's show. Thank you so much. And again, you can follow her on Twitter at the best Twitter handle ever, Ask the Duchess. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks for having me on. Detroit has experienced yet another new menace that has caused extensive blight. And it has only happened in the more recent years, the last few years. Here to tell us how financialization and outside investors recently made things far worse in Detroit's neighborhoods, right when people were hoping the city was making a comeback. Reporter Ali Gross wrote the investigative piece in the Detroit Free Press, Detroit real estate game creates chaos in neighborhoods. Property speculation brings dysfunction to Detroit's housing market, exacerbating blight and instability in the neighborhoods. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ali. Hi, Chuck. Hi. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. As I was leaving uh, Houghton Lake, I was at Houghton Lake for my vacation, and as I was leaving, I picked up a Detroit Free Press on. And that Sunday morning, I saw your uh, newspaper article, and I was like, I have to have Allie on the show. You can follow Allie on Twitter at Allie underscore Elizabeth. That's with an S, and you can find all of her writing at Allison Gross. Dot com. You write about the process by which homes in Detroit became abandoned, how they stay abandoned, and their impact on the neighborhood and the city at large. You uh, start with one address where you describe the, how, the home's history from being a well-maintained home and within only four years it being abandoned. The grass, quote, the grass stopped being mowed, trash and discarded personal belongings started to stack up out front, pipes, the garage door, and a wrought iron gate were scrapped. You add, it's easy to write off such conditions as a thing of Detroit's past a so-called pre-Renaissance problem, the aftermath of Detroit's economic downturn, a byproduct of middle-class flight from the city, disinvestment, and the subprime mortgage crisis. But, again, this isn't a story from the 60s or 70s white flight, or from the decades of decline in the 80s, 90s, or even the 2008 housing bubble bursting, the story of the first home uh, that you focus on uh, that deteriorates over four years of abandonment, begins in 2014, during the second and final year of Detroit's bankruptcy, which began in uh, July 18, 2013, ended December 11, 2014. Is this process of investment and abandonment related in any way to Detroit's bankruptcy? Because I'm trying to figure out why this happened when it did. Right. So actually, the the home, Kent Field, that I focused on, so I, I tracked the chain of title for 23 Detroit homes that were lost to tax foreclosure. 
And subsequently, they were auctioned in the annual Wayne County tax auction. So Kentfield, um, it was uh, auctioned in 2012. The 23 homes, uh, 20 were auctioned in 2012 and three in 2013. Um, and they were all sold to speculators. And they were sold multiple times over the past five years, so everywhere from California, Illinois, to England. Um, and using Google Street View images, I was able to look at the homes um, in 2011, so right before they were auctioned. And then I visited each one this past spring. And so while 70% of the homes appeared to be occupied in 2011, so right before they were lost, 78% were vacant, demolished, or burned down when I visited this spring. Uh, so notably, of the 23 properties, uh, 60% of them um, actually ended up back in the Wayne County tax auction in 2016, which means none of the speculators ever paid taxes on the properties themselves, because in Detroit or in Michigan, homes are foreclosed after three years of delinquent property taxes. So the tax auction, which was intended to spark new ownership and therefore usage of abandoned space and kind of recoup guns, one could argue that this isn't happening. So as it relates to bankruptcy, I'm not exactly sure if it directly correlates, but I think that one could argue people talk right now, and I think you were hitting on this with the, with the quote you kind of picked out, is people talk about Detroit post-bankruptcy as really having rebounded. Um, I moved to Detroit in 2010, and in the time period that I've been there, a lot of development has occurred. You know, we came out of bankruptcy and people talk about it being in a renaissance right now. But I think that you could argue, specifically looking at this project as I was driving around and looking at each of these homes, um, this isn't a, this is a very recent problem. It all, it's happened in the past five years. In the amount of time that I've been in Detroit, in fact, neighborhoods have actually gotten worse. Uh, these are homes from 2012 and 13 that now um, went from being well taken care of. Again, 78% were occupied in 2011 um, to today, 78% of them were demolished, vacant, or burned down. So I, I hope that answers your question. No, it does. So if you see Detroit as getting worse, then to you, what explains the more popular media narrative right now? God, I hate that word, narrative. Uh, <laughs> What explains the more the more you know conventional wisdom today that you hear in the media that uh, Detroit is actually on a rebound? Detroit is in a renaissance. If it's getting worse, what explains to you that kind of media coverage? Well, Detroit's a big city, and so there. Uh, sometimes when people talk about Detroit, it's seven point two square miles, and that's where a lot of the development is invest, invest, invested. Development is being invested. It's happening, um, but the city is far. Bigger. And that's actually a lot of, it's kind of this misnomer about um, the city rebounding that's creating a lot of these problems. And so a lot of the speculators who I wrote about in this piece are under the impression that Detroit's real estate market is hot. And so that's why they're putting down money to buy in neighborhoods, hoping that development is happening, but it's not happening in these further out neighborhoods. And so they're left kind of with properties that don't really have a lot of value. And so they either rent them out in these really predatory schemes, or they let them just sit. And then they sell them to someone else that they think is going to be um, 
believing in this kind of narrative of a hot real estate market in the city. Do you, I'm not too sure if you found this out from your uh, research or not. Is this unique to Detroit? Is Detroit some sort of an experiment or laboratory for this kind of investment? Um, I think speculation happens across the country. I, I don't think Detroit's unique in that sense. I think what is unique is the number of properties that are available. Detroit is a poor city, and many people with cash flow problems get caught up in the crosshairs of the auction. Um, and so they, and houses end up in the auction. And also the way that the auction is set up, it's online. So uh, I think this year it was a $2,500 deposit that you put down. And if you put that down, you can bid in the auction and you can be anywhere. And so it makes it a lot easier to access properties than perhaps it would be at another in another city um, or at another time period. I'm concerned that this is going to concern to uh, this is is going to uh, I'm sorry, uh, spread to other cities that are fighting against blight and then undermining their own fights again against blight. So how easy is it to fall into tax foreclosure in Detroit? I remember the story a few years ago about how they were attaching water bills to people's tax bills. So is it more easy in Detroit to fall into tax foreclosure than it is in other cities? Um, yeah, so I've actually, I'm doing another, the auction's happening right now. Um, so it happens every year in September, and that is by law. So I'm doing a lot of reading actually right now for another article about the auction. So it's on my mind right now. So I'm reading about the history of how the auction happened. And it's, it's across Michigan that it's required. Um, so basically, the auction came about in 1999. And the Hudson Institute, which is a free market think tank, it came up with 14 bills for the Michigan legislature, uh, which were the Michigan Urban Homesteading Act. And it was actually, it was inspired by Abraham Lincoln's Homestead Act of 1862, which basically opened government-owned land to small family farmers and heads of households. I I didn't remember this from my history classes, so maybe you know this already, but heads of households could claim 160 acres of federal land um, if they built property on it, paid a small registration fee, and basically farmed it for five years. In reality, uh, this was really hard to do. They didn't have resources. Many people ended up quitting. The land ended up back in the hands of the government and or in the hands of speculators, which I think is interesting because we're kind of seeing this history repeat itself as what the auction looks like today in Michigan. It was inspired by this uh, 1862 bill. So in Michigan, the idea was appropriated from this. And what the Hudson Institute was trying to do was find a way to get public land back into the hands of private buyers. And so government-owned vacant housing would be transferred to qualifying families with a title transfer after five years. And a lot of the rhetoric had to do with Detroit at the time because there was a lot of foreclosures um, in vacant and abandoned land in Detroit. But an issue with the plan was that many of the houses in the state inventory were basically in disrepair because at the time it took about seven years for an abandoned property to go from the owner to the state. Um, at the time, I think it was like foreclosures happened after five years, and there was no auction. It was a system with liens to recoup back taxes, so there was no real clear title. So this process, they kind of realized that um, by the time property got back in the hands of the state, because it was taking seven years, it was often neglected because 
um, it had been so long and it was irreparable and it wouldn't really work to be able to give that these vacant homes to people for this homesteading act. So instead of trying to refine the act, they came up with a plan to reform the tax reversion law. So this is where they came up with the smaller time frame. So now three years of delinquent taxes um, would get a property to be foreclosed. And instead of the property going to the state, it would go to the county and the public auction was born. Um, so the shorter time frame was supposed to preserve the integrity of the house, make sure homes getting to the local government were in good shape to get back to the private market. Um, the Homesteading Act and the Tax Reversion Law were supposed to go hand in hand, hand in hand together. They were always tied together. The Tax Reversion Law came up because of the Homesteading Act. Um, but ironically, the Homesteading Act never actually came to be. Uh, counties could opt into it. There wasn't a lot of funding for it. it didn't really, no one's done it. But the tax reforms did stick. So what has happened is that people with cash flow problems typically end up getting in the crosshairs of this. Um, so tax taxes owed typically um, in Detroit to end up in the auction, it's as small as $5,000 to $12,000. And for a while, someone could maybe, because the auction prices were so low, maybe you could buy your home back. Um, I believe that like 30% of homes in the auction early days um, were selling for um, yeah, between 2005 and 2015, roughly 30% of all homes purchased at the tax auction were for $500 or less. We're seeing prices starting to rise now because there's this understanding or belief that Detroit is hot. But again, as my article attempted to show, the market's still incredibly dysfunctional. Like some houses can get $500 and then other houses once kind of in the, not necessarily in the auction, but in selling between private speculators, privately between speculators, out to fetch $51,000. It is incredibly random. It's dysfunctional. It's not based off of um, typical attributes that dictate a market, such as the schools nearby, um, public services, amenities. It's, it's random. It's what you can try to convince someone. It's based off kind of a fable or a myth of what Detroit's value is, um, or it's based off the taxes owed because someone wants to get it off their hands in time. That's and the the amazing part about that is the the real disconnect between prices and values. But again, just to sum up kind of what you were saying is that the short-term tax bill was an effort to fix problems with the program that wasn't ever fully implemented it seems like. So this yeah. if if I followed you correctly, going back to the 19th century, this system has always been set up for what is best for private investors and not for the community at large, correct? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you could definitely take that away from it. Okay. Um, I yes, yeah. Uh, so it, uh, you write that Kent Field, the one of the addresses that you talk about in your Detroit Free Press study, uh, this past spring, uh, to better understand uh, property speculation and its impact on Detroit neighborhoods, to come up with a sample group, the Free Press focused on the out-of-state speculator Los Angeles LLC Elite Values Property and tracked the properties in its portfolio. Study revealed a complex system which homes swapped hands in various bundles and newfangled arrangements with the ease and familiarity one normally associates with balancing a checkbook or filling up a tank of gas. Is Los Angeles LLC elite value properties, is that the biggest speculator? Are they only one of a few? Or is this a situation far bigger than one Los Angeles LLC? 
They are one of, I think it was actually, I purposely, so I'm going to tell you the story of how I came across the story because I think it's kind of interesting. Um, but also, I actually am happy. Elite Value Properties is a small fish, um, but I liked the fact that I was focusing on the small fish because I think we often hear in Detroit, if you're reading Detroit papers, you're hearing about the biggest players. Um, but understanding that there are a lot of small people who are just trying to, they they believe the market's hot. It's, it, it almost kind of helps show that no one is truly a winner in this dysfunction. It's really chaotic. But basically, when I started at the Free Press last summer, I was on the breaking news desk. And you do a lot of weather stories, uh, accidents, and just basically a lot of silly viral internet stuff. It's a little depressing. But um, one day in January of last year, I was sent um, a Zillow ad for a house on the east side that was selling for $4,500. And the Zillow ad said, good investment property, squatter may be in the home, but he's friendly. And I was thinking, man, this is bizarre. Um, this isn't a story about a funny Zillow ad. Um, this is a story about a property owner who does or doesn't know if another person is living in the house they're trying to sell. How does that even happen? Um, so I, I wanted to know who owned this house. So I went to the Wayne County Register of Deeds to look up the property's history and try to figure out who owned it, um, what the deal was. And I found out that it was lost to tax foreclosure in 2013 and that Diversified Investment Associates, the company out of Chico, California, purchased it at the auction for $800. In January 2016, so right before it probably would have gone back to auction if nobody was paying taxes, um, Diversified Investment Associates sold the house to Elite Value Properties for $1,000. That was the owner. So using Nexus, I traced the ownership to Elite and specifically to a man, uh, William J. Whitaker, who was in Los Angeles. Um, he was the current owner. He was the man behind the Zillow ad. Uh, when I, I was able to get his number and I you know called him up and initially I was feeling kind of just appalled by the situation. Like, how does this person own this property not knowing that there's another person in it? Um, but once on the phone with him, I, it really kind of solidified for me how everyone in this scenario was this kind of loser, essentially. Um, so Whitaker explained that he went to this Get Rich Fast property investment conference in Indiana in 2015. And he bought a couple rental properties at the end of the course. He registered an LLC, Elite Value Properties. They came back to LA. And when he was home, someone suggested that he invested in Detroit because it was hot. So he linked up with Dennis Elliott, the guy behind Diversified Investment Associates. Um, Elliott is one of those, if you're talking about big fish, small fish, he's one of the top property owners in Detroit, again, based in Chico, California. Um, and Whitaker, he... He purchased 23 houses in the beginning of 2016, uh, 22 from Elliott and then one from another company in Jackson, Wyoming. And he bought them all for just under $1,500. Um, we were on the phone. He was explaining this to me. And he's explaining how at the time he thought this was this great deal. But then he quickly realized essentially his words that they were all shitholes. And so he quickly began to offload them to others who would believe in the myth that Detroit's hot, and he sold it to people in Illinois, England, California. He kept three of them, the ones in the best condition, and that included this one that was now in this Zillow ad. So he had kept it for, you know, two more years and then decided that it still wasn't worth it. So he's putting it on the market for $4,500, which 
interestingly enough, was the taxes currently owed on it. So basically, he's trying to offload it to at least make some money versus if he sat on it, um, that was the amount owed. It would have gone back to the county because of foreclosure. Um, but when I was talking to Whitaker, I was thinking at the time, I was just going to do this story about this guy in L.A., this, this, the guy who was living in his house that he owned, and kind of trying to make sense of all of this in the auction and how this kind of um, showcased kind of the underbelly of the auction, because the auction was meant to reactivate abandoned space, and it was meant to recoup funds, and this clearly was showing that wasn't happening. Um, but I kept going back to Glenfield, the house that had the quote-unquote squatter, and hoping that this guy would talk to me so I would get his side of the story and kind of have a full-fleshed article. Um, but he wouldn't He wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't answer. I left notes. And so finally I'm thinking, okay, well, Whitaker said he had 22 other houses. Maybe I'll go check out one or two of those and see if maybe there's another story or some thread there. Um, so I started going to the other houses, and I didn't really know what I would find. <laughs> But what I ended up finding was there was nothing. There were no people um, because the vast majority of them were vacant. They were burned down. They had been demolished. And it was just kind of this stunning moment when I realized that this is a much bigger story than just this one house and a guy in L.A. in a sweater. But you start digging into the chain of title for all 23 of those houses, these houses, and you actually see this web of speculation and this deterioration and, and how it affects the neighborhood around it. So I don't... I. I don't know if I went on a tangent, but that's basically how the story, how the story came to be. No, that's that's excellent. Uh, how aware are people like Mr. Whitaker, uh, Mr. Whitaker? How aware are those speculators and investors who own the homes, at least on paper, of the homes' condition and the impact their investment has had on the neighborhood? I mean, he clearly didn't. He didn't realize. I mean, he didn't know. He, and, but it was a very self-interest. I mean, you know, you can feel bad for the situation just because it felt just the whole thing feels all just kind of pathetic and sad on every level. But it was from a very self-interested, motivated viewpoint that he was speaking about it, where it was that I, you know, thought I was getting this great deal, pennies on the dollar for these homes, but they were, as you said, shitholes. So I couldn't do anything with them. I couldn't rent them out. I couldn't make more money. I couldn't, I mean, he's trying to sell them. I think so. the one that he put on the market, the $4,500 one that started this piece, it ended up selling for $2,500. So he had to reduce the price and he sold it to someone in Arizona. And that, interestingly enough, was one of the better conditioned homes um, because there was a squatter in it. Someone was actually taking care of it versus a lot of the other ones. If there's no one in it, it's going to, over time, deteriorate. So did, um, did you ever find yeah. anybody actually making money off of these investments? Because it seems from what I was reading of your article that that yeah. it never really happens. That's a real shot in the dark. And that would suggest that this market would collapse, that people wouldn't continue to invest in homes and then leave them abandoned, abandoned leading to neighborhood blight. Well, you have these weird um, like outliers. So one of the homes that I focused on, uh, well, I guess books on 23, but one of the homes it had this really weird story where it sold in the end. I, I detailed it in the piece, but it, it had sold for, I think, um, it ended up selling for $51,000. Uh, so this house sold at the auction um, for $500 in 2012. It then continued to exchange hands with various speculators. Um, 
went back to auction because no one paid taxes on it. And it sold again at the auction for $500. And then in November of last year, so a year ago, it randomly sold for $51,000. So I think people hear things like that and they think this might be worth it. I can, I can get that. It's a stable payout that kind of keeps people coming. I think the other aspect, I spoke with um, Josh Akers, who is a geography and urban and regional studies professor at U of M Dearborn. And he kind of explained, it's kind of like musical chairs where someone buys it, buys it, buys a property from the auction. And then they have three years before it ends up in the auction again. Um, so in those three years, they're, everyone is passing it off. They're passing it off person to person, hoping to get more money than what they put into it. And typically, you know, as I said before, in the auction between 2005 and 2015, roughly 30% of all homes purchased were for $500 or less. So you're not putting much in. So you're hoping you can make more. And whoever's then stuck with it at auction time, they lose. But it's often not that big of a deal because all you're losing is that initial purchase price. So again, like $1,000, $2,000. The stakes, they seem really low from an investor or a speculator's point of view. But I think that this is inaccurate because the stakes are not low for the people in the neighborhood, for the Detroiters. And I think that was something that I was really important to show in this article because the result is the blight, the blight in the city. We so often think about blight and Acres talks about this as well, but you think of blight as this passive process that just sort of happens from neglect. It's static, but in reality, it's really active and it's the product of people, companies, policies, um, and these speculative investors just quickly engaging in this like capital being swapped and titles being swapped. And it's moving really, really, really quickly. Um, and it's not just blight that happens. You know, you have these exploitative rental contracts that people can enter in into. Um, you have neighbors. If, if the rental contract, speculators can typically go through two paths. They might rent it out um, or they're just going to let the house sit there. And so for neighbors, they have to watch the houses around them deteriorate. Or if it gets really bad, which was in one case that I looked at, um, a house will end up being demolished. And in that case, that, that cost is shouldered by the general public. So one house I focused on, it sold at the auction in 2012 for just over $1,700, passed, passed off by a series of speculators, deteriorated with each transaction. It ended up back at the auction, of course, <laughs> because no one paid taxes. Nobody bought it. Ended up back in the hands of the city. And in February 2018, it was demolished for just over $18,000. So, I mean, that's, I think, a perfect example of, you know, I'm unclear of what the taxes owed were, but the average is $5,000 to $12,000. And here you have instead the home now having to be demolished for nearly $20,000. That's a public expense. And again, you quote Joshua Akers, Assistant Professor of Geography and Urban and Regional Studies at uh, the University of Michigan, I think it was. I'm not, I can't remember now. University uh, of Michigan-Dearborn, yeah. Yeah, Michigan-Dearborn, that's right. Uh, you quote him uh, saying that, uh, let me get to this exactly right, uh, while most people like to focus on the visual consequences of a neighborhood's decline, the instigators, speculative investors engaging in a steady and 
Continuous swapping of capital and titles often go under the radar. To what extent are those who live in the neighborhoods uh, scapegoated for a neighborhood's decline caused by outsider investors, poor policy, and unfair law? I would say, but I mean, in, in, in any scenario, who wants to live next door to a blighted, you either have the rental scenario in which there's a lot of instability. Um, people are moving in and out of the properties because what typically happens are these really predatory rent-to-own land contracts that often result in eviction um, because rent-to-own land contracts are not really well-regulated. In Michigan, you don't have to file it with any government office. So the person selling will often put all costs, repairs, maintenances, even taxes on the buyer. Um, So when that happens, if a buyer, you know, misses a payment, they can end up being evicted. Um, And so you have this instability happening that way. Or what's more common is you have speculators just sitting on the property and letting them rot. And so, uh, you know, two examples that I gave in the piece was one that was just kind of heartbreaking was I was talking with this man who's in his, he was 80 and he was sitting on a stoop when I came up to take, I was taking photos of each of the homes to kind of compare with the Google image from 2011 to kind of, you would see if the home was in use right before the auction and then see what the scenario was um, in the spring of 2018, which was also just kind of this really crazy reporting process because I had no, it was, it kind of felt like this, you I would write down the list of the chain of title, of what kind of had happened to each property. But when I show, would show up, I would have no clue what I would find. Um, and it, I mean, that was kind of this, Every it was always kind of a surprise, but more often than not, you'd find vacancy or abandonment. But I was talking to um, this man at a house on the east side, and he was explaining that he had bought his house um, several years, decades ago, um, and he was paying off, finishing paying off his mortgage, and he paid about seven hundred dollars a month. But when he had decided to purchase his house, it was this diverse, really um, vibrant neighborhood, um, densely populated. And here he was, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe a year, I don't know the exact time frame, but soon to paying off and owning this home in full. And what did he have? He was living on a block with, you know, every other house kind of in use. And it, it, the value wasn't there. Um, another home, the one with the, where the property ended up selling for $51,000. Yes, it sold for $51,000. But if you actually looked at the property, it was, had, you know, um, what's the word? Uh, it's like boarded up windows and a boarded up door. It, it looked um, vacant. It was vacant. And so that affects the value of the neighbors around it. Even if it sold for $51,000, no one necessarily, that's not going to necessarily impact the price of a property next to it if it's this blighted kind of eyesore. And the, 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 it was a brother and sister who lived uh, two houses down. And the sister now owned the house. It had been passed along to her from her mother. And you have to think of it that way, too, that there's like this equity. There's this like ability to pass down um, a home from one generation to the next. Her mother, when she purchased it, the neighborhood looked completely different. Um, and now, you know, maybe the house sold for $51,000, but that's in the fact, the fact that 
everyone around it had to deal with this eyesore. So it definitely falls on the shoulders of the neighbors. And uh, I just want to point out to our listeners, there's a lot more to this story. Allie's been uh, continually following up on it. And uh, even in her original piece, she talks about problems with rent-to-own situations and land contracts. So there's a lot more to this story. You should definitely check out all of Allie's writing at her website, allisongross.com. We have been speaking with reporter Allie Gross, who wrote the investigative piece in the Detroit Free Press, Detroit Real Estate Game Creates Chaos in Neighborhoods. You can follow Allie on Twitter at Allie underscore Elizabeth, and that's Elizabeth with an S. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. How bad is financialization for Detroit? How bad is our current form of capitalism for the city? How much of a threat is the current form of capitalism to Detroit's renaissance? I mean, I... I all you have to do is look at any of these neighborhoods. Nothing. I mean, it's just great. I mean, I don't think Detroit can actually ever rebound um, if this if this process continues the way it is, um, because you know the city, as I just explained before, so much development is happening in these seven point two square miles. But the city is. I think 132 square miles, 136 square miles. It's far, far faster. And when you go to these neighborhoods that have been fallen victim to this process, I do not believe that a true equitable renaissance, as they say, could happen in Detroit um, because of this. So I, I would say it's pretty, pretty problematic. I really appreciate you being on the show, Ellie. I'll be following your work at the Free Press, and I hope to have you back on in the future so you can give us an update. Cool. Thank you so much, Chuck. Take care. Appreciate having me. All right. Bye. There's a revolution happening in Detroit, and here to drive us through it and to explain there's nothing like what's happening in the Motor City, the city where I was born, journalist and screenwriter Drew Philp, author of A $500 House in Detroit, Rebuilding an Abandoned Home and an American City. Welcome to This Is Hell, Drew. What's up, buddy? How are you doing? Uh, great. It's great to have you on the show. You can follow Drew on Twitter at Drew Philp. That's D-R-E-W-P-H-I-L-P. And you can find out more about Drew at DrewPhilp.com. So let me get to our first question here. Uh, in your article at The Guardian last year, an article that a listener on our show, Tom G., suggested you be a guest on our, our show, he sent us a link to your book as well as a link to an article you wrote at The Guardian about the water shortage that happened last year in, uh, in Detroit. And I wanted to get to that real quick. You uh, wrote that uh, in the article, No Water for poor people, the nine Americans who risk jail to seek justice. You write about then 73-year-old Detroit activist Marion Kramer and an ordained Methodist minister named Bill Wiley Kellerman, who were, as you write, arrested for blocking private water shutoff trucks in their hometown of Detroit. Along with seven others and a host of onlookers, Kramer and Kellerman linked arms, sang songs, and prayed while obstructing the only entrance to Homerich Incorporated, the private company hired to perform the deed. Only a handful of shutoffs were performed that sweltering summer day compared to the usual 400 in or so. In uh, 2016, more than one in six Detroit households had their water cut off. 83,000 homes over the past three years. In defiance of the status quo, the group that would come to be known as the Homerich Nine would use their bodies and lives as the collateral for the sins of a nation. Why were so many homes losing access to water in Detroit? Because this became even an issue at the U.N. 
Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one uh, that's uh, still up for debate. Um, uh, I, the activists, I think, think that the uh, water is being shut off to gentrify the city, uh, very simply. Gentrification is not happening in Detroit in the same way that it's happening in, say, uh, Brooklyn or San Francisco, where rents are rising astronomically and people are being pushed out. Um, there's desperate poverty in Detroit. And one way to clear the city of that poverty and open it up for um, uh, investment, in quotes, uh, from uh, very rich men is to uh, extract um, the elements uh, in the city that are potentially undesirable uh, to capital. And I think the water shutoffs is is one way that was happening. We saw uh, Bill Kellerman and Marion Kramer, along with seven others, uh, put their lives on the line. I mean, their their freedom, uh, really, to risk uh, uh, to do this. Their court uh, their court case lasted more than two years. They refused to plead and wanted it to go to court uh, one day. Actually, when the jury was in the uh, in the hallway, uh, uh, walking to deliberate. Uh, the government shut the trial down and uh, commenced a new trial all over again. Uh, it was pretty wild, um, pretty wild situation. But it's also an excellent representation of what is happening in Detroit now. There are people with uh, enormous amounts of conscience um, fighting to make the city what uh, we all believe it can be. You write that when reporters come to places like Detroit, their articles often read as simple catalogs of misery, records of the mute suffering of the poor and dispossessed. While it's true Detroit has no shortage of wretchedness, taken together these stories paint the picture of helpless people who are acted upon, people with no agency. Now, while it is important for those not living in places like Detroit to know the misery that people can experience, what do you think is the best way to report on it without either making the people seem helpless or hopeless while simultaneously not making the story about, you know, this is the the typical narrative that you see in the media, the resilience of residents and overcoming opt- obstacles that may lead outsiders to actually think that the, their problems can be solved, that the system actually works for residents. Right. So what's the best way for this stuff to be reported on? by telling people what the mis- what misery is while not saying like this is all about resilience and people overcoming obstacles. So the best way to do that is hire reporters from the places that you would like to report on. It's difficult for people from New York for example wearing, you know, expensive suits to talk to people wearing work boots in misery. I think it's important to um, always and, and and this isn't just for location, this is uh for people of color, women um, writing stories. I think it's essential to hire hire people from the places because uh for example, I've lived in Detroit for ten years. I've grown up in Michigan my whole life uh, in a very rural area. And I have a different perspective on what goes on there. I have much deeper sources, uh, much deeper uh, insight into the kind of just community community structure, and it changes how that gets reported. I can find stories like this that have gone on in the media, or excuse me, that have gone on in Detroit for two years. This trial was a long trial that I don't think anyone else reported on. I think this is the only report, um, and it's difficult to find that if you just kind of parachute in, like go to a bar or two for you know a weekend. Um, and in this water issue, uh, is there a sense? of how common, how often residents have their water turned off for reasons that are out of their control, that actually can lead to even parents losing their children to the state. How, 
how often is it that it's not the fault of the user itself, the person who is supposed to be paying the bill, that it's not their fault that their water is being turned off, that it's not their fault that the state might actually come in and take their kids away because they don't have running water? Um, so, so it's part of the problem with the water shutoffs in Detroit is the city doesn't even have good numbers. The city doesn't even know how many people have turned back on or can say how many people have been turned off and, and not and not turned on at all are still living without water. So we don't know. Um, the activists think it's uh, a lot, um, and I would uh, tend to agree. A lot of the people I talked with um, were issues where, for example, a landlord uh, would be paying, uh, would be supposed to be paying the water bill and not doing it, and the water would be shut off to a family with you know three kids, and then and then what do you do? Or and the records are uh, in Detroit are notoriously. Um, uh, unwell kept uh we'll say and uh so it's it's really it's that's that's a really difficult number um however the united nations did come and say that it was a violation of human rights that what detroit was doing it's also important to remember that detroit is literally uh sits on you can spit into the largest source of fresh water on the planet um standing in detroit the, the system of the great lakes um which is which is absurd. Anyways, the uh, the United Nations came and said uh, this is a clearly a violation of human rights. Um, so I think that uh, that will tell you something right there that in America, on the largest source of fresh water, the, the UN is coming and saying, "Whoa, uh, what are you guys doing?" Well, so what does that say? Because what does that say to you about Detroit, about the state of Michigan, about the state of capitalism and democracy in Detroit, when they're trucking in water from elsewhere, even internationally? despite the largest source of fresh water being right on Detroit's doorstep. What does that reveal to you about the shortcomings of the systems that we live within? You know, it's the same thing with Flint, right? I think one thing uh, in this, uh, these, these stories about water in Michigan in particular have um, gotten wrong or missed is that these things happened uh, under emergency management. So what that was was a plan uh, by the governor uh, who disposed uh, entire governments of cities, for example, Detroit and Flint, and installed a dictator, literally a dictator who had uh, uh, complete control over the decisions of a city, near complete control, and answered only to the governor. These decisions were made under an emergency manager, um, which is the scariest part to me. At one point in Michigan, uh, when Detroit was under emergency management, this also includes Flint, one out of every two uh, black people in the, in the state had lost the right to vote uh, for uh, their local elected leaders. One out of every two black people in Michigan lost the right to vote to elect to elect them uh, to elect their uh, local leaders. That's uh, enormous, uh, I think, and I think has been uh, missed in a lot of these stories. Uh, that right there says more than anything to me that uh, you know I live in the United States and uh, the governor, the Republican governor here, thought that I was not uh, capable of making my own decisions about who would who would lead me and uh, took that right uh, and. That has ended up in, in poisoned water for Flint, which is still poison, and uh, water shutoffs in Detroit. Uh, literally thousands, uh, and in the past hundreds of thousands, one out of every six people. It also says it, it's also very similar to the housing crisis in Detroit. Uh, these numbers are difficult to believe because they're so absurd. One out of every three uh, houses in Detroit has been foreclosed. One out of every three, representing a population about the size of Buffalo, New York. Um, I don't, I don't understand how we can live with this as a society under any system. Um, I've watched my neighbors uh, lose their homes and almost lose their homes because of this, and uh, we seem to be on to other things in the media. 
Yeah, and the thing is, is that these uh, water rights activists, they came up with an affordability plan so everybody could be paying off their uh, water bills and that this water affordability plan was going to lead to actually more revenue for the city. Yet then you have the emergency manager come in and he eliminates the program. Why would the emergency manager eliminate a program that not only provided a city service that wasn't being provided for the citizens of Detroit, but also increased revenues for the city? What does that reveal to you about the whole emergency manager uh, setup? And I, would have, I want to be clear here, too, at the outset, that program cost almost exactly as much as what Detroit has spent on shutting people's water off. Um, it, in, in addition to uh, making money for the city, it, it tells me, and I think it tells a lot of people in Detroit, that the city is uh, uh, not for us anymore, or there is going to be a fight over who the city is for. Is it uh, the nice bars downtown, or is it the kind of average folks that are um, living and, and struggling in the neighborhoods in Detroit? Right now, we talk a lot about new Detroit and old Detroit, because Detroit is changing rapidly. Many of your listeners have probably heard about this kind of renaissance in Detroit that's going on, which is true. There is a, there is a renaissance happening in Detroit, but it is not reaching many or even most uh, Detroiters. And what that tells me is that uh, Detroit is being, uh, the door in Detroit is being opened for a kind of rapacious capitalism that, um, you know, we see elsewhere, but Detroit was um, in many ways insulated from in the past because um, you know, it was it was murder city. Uh, uh, culture happens in a vacuum, and Detroit was able to develop a unique uh, culture. Whatever the opposite of greed is, all the good things, healing um, and aid and, and neighborliness, uh, we're, we're growing in Detroit and, and absolutely still are. But I think right now there is a giant conflict going on between the, the folks that wish to make money off of what is happening in Detroit and the folks that wish to uh, make good neighbors. But the emergency manager, uh, Kevin Orr, he did guide the city through bankruptcy, and Michigan Governor Rick Snyder saw that as a victory. In your opinion, because you witnessed the entire span of that bankruptcy in 2013, 2014, and the emergency manager, how good has bankruptcy been for the city of Detroit? I mean, the, the numbers are in the water shutoffs, right? It's one one in six uh, houses have, have had their water shut off. Uh, I would ask you and your listeners to think if that's acceptable in a in a society that, um, you know, we live in uh, perhaps the richest country the world has ever seen, um, and we still can't uh, provide our citizens with uh, the most basic of necessities. And that water affordability plan, just again to, to uh, restate, um, the plan was actually voted on by the public in Detroit. Right. They, they voted for it to be in place, and then the emergency so, manager came in and took it out. So it's not just Detroit. The entire state of Michigan right. uh, voted uh, for, uh, excuse me, against that plan, um, including the folks in northern Michigan that have nothing to do with Detroit um, in the rural areas. People understood that was uh, both morally and democratically wrong. Uh, the governor made a few changes uh, to the law and rammed that law through Congress without a vote of the people. He also attached a uh, financial rider onto that bill, which, uh, due to Michigan's constitution, the public would not be able to vote on that bill again uh, because it had this atta- attached financial rider. So uh, the democratic uh, mechanizations uh, were truly subverted in Detroit and Michigan, and that is, uh, that is uh, startling to me. Your book is titled A $500 House in Detroit, Rebuilding an Abandoned Home in an American City. Why did you decide to buy an abandoned building in Detroit and rebuild it? Uh, Did neighbors or other members of the community 
view you as some sort of gentrifier, as some interloper? Why did you decide to move to Detroit and buy and rebuild a home? Uh, so the way I think about it, the way I thought about it at the time was that I was staying home. I come from a pretty blue-collar family in the middle of nowhere in Michigan, very rural area. My dad worked with his hands, um, and I was really lucky uh, to go to the University of Michigan. And uh, When I was uh, deciding what to do after school, I saw basically everyone I know uh, leaving. This is in 2008. Detroit was still a murder city, and the economy was absolutely awful. Everyone I knew was leaving. I read a book called A Small Place by Jamaica Kincaid, and it convinced me to stay home and use my education and maybe some small talents that I had um, for good in the place that I came from. And Detroit made the most sense because uh, what I did in Detroit would affect my sister as a nurse in Lansing or, you know, my cousins framing out houses in Kalamazoo or, or also Lansing. Um, so I looked at it as, as staying home. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to do it uh, in the place that I grew up and had known my all, whole life and not go off to the Peace Corps or something. Um, and I was working, uh, I was making $8.50 an hour standing floors to help pay through college um, in these kind of cheap rentals. And I got to thinking that I could buy one of these and fix it up and live in there. And most importantly, what it would do would keep me in Detroit. It would keep me from leaving. Detroit is a city of leaving. The city was built for more than, uh, more than double the amount of people that live there, and everybody just kind of left. And I, I needed something to help keep me there. At the time, I could have fit everything that I owned in, into, my, into my Jeep, and I wanted something to indelibly tie me to the city so that I couldn't just leave like everybody else. You write how you won the house on a $500 bid, and you bought the two adjacent lots as well, $500 for each lot on each side. You describe how you let out a whoop at the auction and began to climb over people toward the aisle. All of a sudden, other participants were wishing me luck touching me, shaking my hand, and you explain how you felt a remarkable amount of approval from the people around you in the audience, almost all black. Truth was, you write, I wasn't sure how a city more than 80% African-American would accept a strange white kid in a place whites had almost completely abandoned in the latter half of the 20th century. Did you get the same kind of supportive comments from African-Americans outside the auction? What has been the range of reactions you have received from not only African-Americans, but other longtime Detroiters, no matter their demographic? Uh, incredibly supportive, uh, almost uh, without exception. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not some, I'm, you know, I'm some blue collar kid from Michigan uh, that happens to have, you know, a small talent to write now. At the time, I didn't. I've done all the work on my house, aside from the roof. I've uh, done all the work on my house with my own hands. I, you know, I'm not coming into Detroit with a lot of money, uh, and I'm just uh, trying to be part of the community. I like Detroit. I like Detroit as it was 10 years ago. I like Detroit as it was 20 years ago. I really like my neighbors. I'm not going into this place trying to change anything, trying to change the culture or make it mine. Um, I'm not trying to sing over the chorus that's going on in Detroit right now. I'm trying to add my voice to that chorus. And people have been remarkably, uh, remarkably receptive. I've also done, you know, everything I can to uh, aid, aid, aid the, the people of Detroit and, and try to be honest in uh, not only my dealings, but in, in, in the way that I talk about the city outside uh, here, here, for example. So it's been absolutely remarkable um, how people have accepted me. And I think that's part of uh, the magic of Detroit, of this uh, neighborliness. I came wanting to be a neighbor, wanting to be one voice in that chorus. And people have, uh, people have absolutely accepted me and 
And uh, I feel extremely grateful, honestly, uh, to the people of Detroit for what they've done for me. You write that since moving into Detroit and into your formerly abandoned home that you got for $500, that over those nine years as I lived in the city, a massive change began. Detroit growing, shifting, molting. How has Detroit changed in only the nine years you have lived there? Is it completely different than it was? Has it shed what it was and become something new? I don't know. It's a good question, and I think it's still one that's open and up for debate. Um, you know, on the kind of glib side, there's traffic now. Um, a lot more people are moving into the city, and, and it's not murder city. On, on, on the less glib side, the narrative has changed um, in the media, and I think this is incredibly important. Um, the narrative used to be uh, ruined porn, what we call these kind of crumbling, beautiful, abandoned buildings, and now it's uh, you know hipsters saving the city with coffee houses and and uh, our billionaire Dan Gilbert, uh, you know, building the tallest building in the city, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think that nar- narrative is dangerous because at the same time, uh, you know, one in three people has been uh, removed from their homes to do this and is still being, and, and and one in six has lost access to access to water. That narrative is absolutely crucial about what is happening, and it is completely different. Um, from when I moved in 10 years ago. I remember like punks. I remember a kid with a tattoo of a Molotov cocktail on his forearm when I told him I lived in Detroit in you know 2007 or 2008 and him being like, whoa, what are you doing? And now I tell people I live in Detroit and they're like, oh, cool, it's great. Here it's coming back. Um, that's a that's a big deal because it's, it's without a doubt not coming back for everyone and, and certainly uh, not for the vast majority of people that live in Detroit. Again, uh, I think the door has been opened for a kind of rapacious capitalism that we've seen uh, you know, all over the world. Um, and now it's uh, happening in Detroit. I was perhaps naive to think that that would never happen. Um, when I when I when I first uh, moved to Detroit and saw what was going on with the people there and with the neighborhoods and with the actual neighbors, what they were trying to build, the struggle for African American self sufficiency in Detroit is, is one that's, that's long, um, and they've been gracious enough to, uh, to to give me and people like me a peek at that. Um, and I think now that is uh, truly being threatened by. A lot of these, uh, you know, developments that are, in my opinion, in the media, un- uh, uncritically looked at and uh, absolutely cheerleaded. Yeah, and for uh, listeners, you might want to go back into our archives and listen to our interview with Herb Boyd about the self-determination of uh, oh, yeah. African Americans in Detroit, and uh, that history is really fascinating. You write that eventually Detroit would become the Lower East Side of the 80s, the Berkeley of the 60s, the Greenwich Village of the 50s, but up to that time it had only been understood as an open and active wound on the American body that we had been ignoring for decades. How is Detroit like the Lower East Side of the 80s, Berkeley of the 60s, Greenwich Village of the 50s? How How is it comparable? It's uh, in many ways where right now America is deciding its future. Um, We have an enormous decision to make with this kind of city uh, very much uh, in in ruins, although the people are not. I want to be very clear about that. Um, We have a decision to make about who we want to be as Americans. Uh, Which way do we go? Do we go towards this kind of hyper-capitalism and uh, racism that's, uh, in my opinion, par for the course? Or... Do we go in a different direction? I think there is a incredible opportunity um, in Detroit to create uh, not only a city but a community that is absolutely new. Uh, I was looking at uh, one of your past interviews about a gentleman in Rehova, I think, um, and he was uh, describing how. Uh, what he saw was magical, and what I've seen in Detroit is magical. I've seen that there is a new way to live in America. 
Uh, and it can happen um, if we want it, if we fight for it. Uh, however, that's not going to happen if we just do the same things where we're okay with one in three people being kicked out of their homes. With a, with a refugee crisis the size of Buffalo, New York, with people not having access to water in the richest country in America, if we're okay with that, Detroit's just going to be like anywhere else. Um, the good news is there are a lot of brilliant, intelligent people, both old and new, um, who are working to, to make this new Detroit and this new world a possibility. So, well then, bring it back to Rojava a little bit. To what degree do you believe what is taking place in Detroit, what you have seen over the last nine years, and even continuing to this day, is a revolution? So, this is an interesting question because Grace Lee Boggs, have you had Grace Lee Boggs on before? No, I did not have, I was in email contact with her for a very long time. Uh, She had too much difficulty with the, you know, hearing on the phone, and so we weren't able to have her on, unfortunately. Brilliant woman, anyways. Grace Lee Boggs is a philosopher that lived in Detroit up until very recently, uh, died uh, RIP at uh, 100 years old, and uh, basically uh, any of the good ideas stem from uh, Grace Lee and her husband, uh, Jimmy Boggs. And she talked about this. She talked about not revolution, but evolution. Um, And I think that people, yes, the answer is yes, there is a revolution going on, but I don't think that's a revolution um, that... Uh, many people, many people think of with guns and flags. It's a revolution of conscience, of humanity, with humanity taking a new step into a different epoch from, uh, as as Miss Boggs uh, said, uh, from the epoch of, of rights to the epoch of responsibilities. I see people um, stepping up to take responsibilities in their communities and their own lives in a way that, uh, in my short life, um, I have not seen. So yes, I, I absolutely think there's a revolution going on there, but it is a, a much different kind of revolution than um, than the one in. Uh, well, you know, I don't know, I don't know uh, exactly what's going on in Rehoboth, so I won't, I will not say it's different, but um, it's different, I think, from the classic conception of what we think of as a, a revolution. We have been speaking with journalist and screenwriter Drew Philp, author of A $500 House in Detroit, Rebuilding an Abandoned Home and an American City. You should check out his writing on a regular basis over at The Guardian. Uh, He has a recent article from May about tree sitters in West Virginia and their efforts to try and stop uh, some of the environmental damage that is happening there. And we want to thank listener Tom G. again for suggesting Drew as a guest. Thank you very much, Tom. One last question for you, Drew. And as always, it's our question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. This is the thing that I'm really concerned about, having uh, being born in Detroit, raised across eight mile in East Detroit. I saw what happened when we had a mono economy and when that economy left, the place just kind of collapsed. And that's, you know, there was white flight, there was racism, there was a whole bunch of things that happened. But depending on one part of the economy, one uh, sector of the economy is always a little bit, you know, not a great idea. So what would happen if Dan Gilbert and Quicken Loans either went out of business or just left Detroit? So it's a great question, you know, um, and a question I ask uh, often. I I think Dan Gilbert probably has more power in the city than the mayor. Um, And uh, I don't know. And that's, that is one of the biggest mistakes I think we're making. People often ask me, you know, what do you want to have happen in Detroit? And there is one thing. And I do not want to make this, the same mistakes of the past. And uh, this is without mono industry. It's without question one of them. For me, a success in Detroit will be if we try new things and try, try, some, try something different. They don't all have to work, but we have to try. 
and I think this is this is uh, without a doubt uh, one of those one of those same mistakes. And um, if Dan Gilbert, uh, God forbid, uh, you know, steps off the curb and is hit by a bus tomorrow. I have no idea what will happen to the city. Um, it's an enormous, enormous problem for democracy. And I think these these things stem, like the emergency manager, uh, the water shutoffs, are really problems of democracy um, at, at the face. For example, Dan Gilbert has a private security company. Um, we have already dealt with that um, in Detroit with uh, Henry Ford. Henry Ford, um, in the uh, early 30s, uh, his uh, private security killed uh, four men and a boy on what's called the Detroit Hunger March. Um, uh, when private entities have uh, the power of the police, that's an enormous problem. And I am begging uh, your listeners and, and anybody I can talk to really to think about that and to think about what we're doing to democracy. Uh, in Detroit and places like it, because it uh, it becomes truly terrifying. Drew, I really appreciate you being on the show this week, and uh, I'm really also going to appreciate you letting me crash at your house the next time I go to Detroit. <laughs> Absolutely. I have a giant house. You're uh, welcome anytime. I can hear the echo, actually. Thank you so much, Drew, for being on our show. I really, really appreciate it, and I look forward to having you back on the show in the near future. Hey, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.